Welcome to another episode of The Paragon Path. This is episode one of season two. Today we're talking about strategy versus tactics, what they are, what the differences are, how to use them in concert, and how to make sure that you can get a simple, straightforward strategy and tactic across to your team. This one's a little bit all over the place. I'm going to go into the weeds a couple times because the strategy topic is kind of a big one. So don't be afraid to stop, take a break, come back to it, or listen a couple times. This is going to be a topic that comes up a lot over the next season because strategy is something that is integral to how we play our game. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and let's get on the path. Welcome to the Paragon Path. Let's get on it. We are live. I was way too loud. Uh, we are live. <laughs> uh, welcome back to uh, whatever. We're going to call it episode one of Paragon Path because episode one originally of the Paragon Path season two failed. So this is now episode one and episode one will become episode two. If you followed that logic, congratulations, you should get a Paragon. Um, we have a discussion going on today about tactics versus strategy, because if you didn't know, they are different things. Uh, they involve different thought processes, and we're going to work with uh, our group of, of paragons and tacticians to kind of give you an easier sense of how this works, because um, this is like military training kind of stuff, like thinking about how a team moves, how like building your team and, and things like that, and then using a strategy for a certain goal, how those work is not something I think a lot of amp guarders practice in their free time unless you're really into like Civ or like Age of Empires, then you might be into that stuff. But uh, this is gonna be a base for a lot of things as you move up. And especially because Order of the Battle now wants you to do teamwork, you want to have large teams moving in certain ways. This is gonna be a key thing for you to understand. So we're gonna go over some of the basics of it. We might get into some of the weeds of it as well. Um, yeah, this is gonna kind of go all over the place. So stick with us, you might have to watch it a couple times. For our guests today, we are going to start in, because I'm recording, so this my corner matters. So we're going to start with Aurelius in the top left corner. Uh, Aurelius, we want to introduce yourself and your accolades. How's it going? I'm uh, Sir Aurelius, uh, Knight of the Serpent, uh, chasing Warlord. We'll see if I get there. Uh, also chasing Battlemaster, uh, currently a knight, so I'm sitting pretty to, to actually make that one before it's retirement time. Mm -hmm. uh, one Olympiad in the last one we had, which was, I think, 2019. Whichever one the Winter's Edge one was. I think that was 2019, yeah. Yeah. Uh, masterminded about a third of the Team Polaris strats at uh, Keep 2021. And uh, all of them were successful. So I was really proud of that. That we crushed it. Oh, yeah. Team Polaris completely dominated that event mm -hmm. until we lost two thirds of our team to a knighting. And then we fought to a standstill instead of crushing. We were also the small team at that point, which was entertaining. Yep. And we're supposed to be attacking a castle with a badly undersized team. Did not work. Did not work well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a good time. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's me. Uh, Dante, who was also at that event. Uh, I am Dante. I have eight orders of the battle. Um, I don't really have a lot of accolades. I guess I was in the team that executed Aurelius's uh, tactics uh which was pretty much point and shoot pretty good uh 
I know we had a deception move in there. That deception move worked beautifully. We can talk about that uh, more in detail, but there was some deception in in these tactics. You also have a paragon you're just ignoring right now. I I'm looking right at it. It's like right above my monitor, but we're not gonna talk about that. Just, it's just a paragon warrior. It's fine. Everybody gets those. I don't have one. Come on. Well, Actually, pretty rare. We need to get you one. I don't have the armor for it. Seven are more common, but we need to make you the armor. Then out, put it on, on the calendar. Up. Yeah, come on out to my garage. We'll uh, we'll bank some out. I've got to I've got to plan my vacations better, guys. Yeah, I can get you <laughs> six points. Hell yeah! And last but not least, we have Maxim. Is it Max M or Maxim? Like I know it's M A X E M. Is it M or um? <laughs> uh, I'm not too picky. It's Max M, but yeah, I mean. Whatever. <laughs> okay. I just want to pronounce names right. We're inclusive here. No, you're here. good. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'm Maxim. Um, I play out of Taldegore. Uh, I have a Battlemaster. Um, I've been playing since September 2006. Um, I have a Paragon Warrior and Paragon Healer. I'm working on my Paragon Druid. Um, and I really like... Uh, uh, I really like to command on the battlefield and tell people where to stand what to do um yeah that's uh that's about it <laughs> i mean the healer is a, a fantastic position for that because you're literally watching the whole field like I, it it is it is uh yeah i found that out i've been playing a lot of archer and that's not as easy to do because i'm too focused on the the mm -hmm. pole arms and they're unarmored folks it's it is an interesting perspective change Go, becoming like the full support class because once you step back as the full support class you now have a different perspective because you're I don't want to say it's like a second process or an easier like you can kind of be doing the reses and heals and mends and stuff like that in the back line as an easier mental process but it does you're not being stressed as much by like the front line so you can watch the battlefield and make these hard decisions and be like no 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 the torches are taking the left flank go Fuck them up that way. Yeah, yeah. The, the torches got through last week. I mean, that's what they do. Delos has made it several times stated that heaven is a ditch. Heaven is a ditch, and I'm on the left flank or something like that. He's got a line with it. You got to get that on a shirt. I tried to make he probably him a shirt. does. He probably does. Let's not let's not lie. Delos probably has a shirt with that. He should get a tunic with it to make it official. Um, Perfect. All right, so this this episode we're talking about strategy and tactics and the differences between those things and how to work them in together. So uh, first, we really need to define the two things because strategy and tactics a lot of times are talked about interchangeably, um, and they're really not. They're they're technically two different things. So uh, let's go through and we'll just define the difference between define each of them. So what is a strategy? If we're looking at a battlefield, what is a strategy? Go ahead, go first. Yeah, go for it. Uh, so to me, strategy is the overall goals and uh, uh, default settings of the team. Like when in doubt, work on this aspect of the plan. Mm -hmm. Another way to look at it is uh, what are the rules of the game and how do we break those? Mm -hmm. Versus tactics are... Uh, now that the team knows generally what they're supposed to be doing, I'm on the, the small unit that's going to the right, trying to either distract or I'm the real objective. Uh, and what do we do about the the small unit that the other team sends against us? Like mm -hmm. what, you know, 
three to five second movements or uh, actions can we take to gain advantage in the very short term? So strategies, the long term plan and tactics are what do you do to get to the strategy goal? Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I think that's uh, it's like macro versus micro. You're yes. you're looking at a macro change. What do you, what is the overall goal versus micro changes and uh, movements based on what's happening around you? Um, yeah. Anybody else? More ideas? I I agree with that. I think strategy is kind of your uh, pre-planned uh, doctrine before things, and then tactics is how you implement. And uh, I think strategy is less fluid than tactics. Um, yes. tactics is maybe smaller than strategy. Um, one fits inside the other, the other one does not. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's a good way to think about that, that like strategy is kind of hard to, once it's kind of set, it's hard to change because it's your whole field's goal, but tactics you can move and maneuver and be flexible with in pretty much any sense because you mm -hmm. need to make that change. That's a good way to put it. I really like that. Dante, you got anything to add? I feel like everybody's taking all the good answers. Okay. So I'm well, just sitting here. <laughs> we'll so let you go first. Not, not in a grief. I'm not a, listen, let's, let's not get crazy. So. <laughs> but I'm just going to nod and agree. Like, yes, yes. I'm going to give one of these, like, the chin rub and be like, yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. That is right. Yes. All right. So we've got our definition because that's really important. If we're going to talk about something, we have to define what it is first. Um, if we're comparing the two, and how do they apply? I think for this, it's going to be easiest if we kind of create some basic scenarios. So um, all of us are Midwest players. Taldegor, Polaris, Rising Winds are all in uh, the area that have gone to keep. And I believe all of us have been at the last several keeps, at least. Guaranteed. Uh, um, yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, just because I live in the Rising Winds doesn't mean I'm not Polaris anymore. No, I know you're uh, still Polaris. I'm just saying. This, let the, this let the orc show Alstil <laughs> and Polaris. I, I just live in a dead zone of the rising winds. I mean, you've got like KO like five minutes away. Yeah, but we're the two players here. Yeah, the, I guess Manima's a half hour down the road, but oh my. if they would show up Manima, the park, would be KO, a park. and Aurelius in the same town, y'all should just be always fighting and like building That's things. the rising winds right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's the powerhouse of the rising winds in a dead zone of the rising winds. This is terrible, guys. You got to get better. All the rising winds should move to where are you guys located? What is it? It's between Kalamazoo or something like that. Yeah, I'm Kalamazoo. Uh, so is uh, Rakeo and Manimas in uh, what's the name of the town? I just had it and lost it. Either way, I think all, Marshall. All, all just the rising the winds, y'all gotta like just congregate right there so that you can have the best teachers for tactics and battle games and all that stuff because like they're right there, guys. Use Aurelius has plenty of land. I give you guys permission to have an event on his property. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you want to. There's uh, some nasty stuff sticking out of the ground down at the it'll, bottom. It'll be fine. It'll be Turns fine. out two owners ago used it as a dump. Oh. Oh, nice. Found that out after I bought the place. Hey, that's that's your dump. All right. But you talk about it like that. <laughs> all right. So we've all been to keep. Uh, and explaining some of the key battle games are very simple because uh, for any battle game writers, you know the more people you have to explain rules to, the harder it is to explain more rules. So the simpler the game, the easier it is to get for more people. So like a classic game at keep is there's a castle. One team is inside the castle. The other two teams are on the outside and they have to try to get in the castle. 
that's about it. That That's like for the most part, uh, about 80% of the last battle games of Keep have all been a break into the castle game. Um, it's a siege. It's very straightforward. Uh, using that, what do we define the strategy for how to get that done? Like if it's just a super basic, you've got your battering rams, you've got the castle doors, and you just have to get through one of the doors, and that's the end of the game. What are we looking at as a strategy? So the, there's a couple of complications here. And first is that keep uses three teams rather than two, and yes. that changes dynamics considerably. Because mm-hmm. uh, first off, uh, you've got numbers on one side versus not on the other, and you've got terrain on one side, not on the other, mm-hmm. uh, which is very different from most amp guard games anywhere. Right. Uh, the other thing you've got is uh, rotating teams through the castle. So as you're discussing strategies, it's important to not let your competition, who are currently your allies, assuming you're attacking at this point, mm-hmm. know what your strategy is once you're inside the castle. So there's a lot of uh, placement advantage as to where in the rotation are you. Yep. Uh, I feel like I feel like communication is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like how you were saying, like you don't want to let your allies who are going to become your enemies know too much. You have to be vague enough so that they don't figure out what your team wants to do. But at the same time, you want to explain enough so that they can complement what your team is going to do so that they can help you. And then later on, they don't know enough to like mess with you. Mm-hmm. Like They're like, oh, they're going to do this and we could just break it right there off the bat. Right. So there's... Like that's very important. Uh, speaking of that, there's a huge advantage in going first on the defense in a three-team game. Humongous. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, to the point that uh, that was so Soul Invictus back when they existed. Uh, all three of the panelists here are veterans of Soul Invictus, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Uh, y'all, y'all had some of the best tactics I keep I've seen in a long... Like, the, the teamwork that you guys create on the field was fantastic and amazing. It's part of the reason I wanted to get you guys together to talk about this, because it's... It's really hard to not notice that when you're standing in the... I was playing Bard most of the time, so I'm like midline to backline. I'm like, oh, look at Sol Invictus. All the people in yellow and, and red are like crushing. Only group ever to win three keeps. Is that true? Can we fact check that? I did before, right before we come on here. <laughs> Sol Invictus is the only one that's won three. Um, one of them was not what? announced, but uh, I personally know the people that were tallying the points. And they suppressed the points that year specifically because they did not want Soul Invictus to win. Right. Uh, while we did a lot of winning, we did not we did not do a lot of friend making. So, uh, so we always, always, always volunteered to defend the castle first mm-hmm. for those games. It's definitely uh, an advantage. In fact, the last game that, in fact, the last keep that Soul Invictus did win, I think it was 2019. Uh, was the the fireball year where we had buckets of oil on top of the castle. Oh yeah. And uh, we smashed the castle game on defense based on, you know, delaying tactics. Of course, the two teams won before time was called. But uh, the other two rounds, uh, I'd already identified that anti-paladins were completely immune to the buckets of oil. And the uh, rule writers had neglected to uh, overcome that. No, no, no. I would they, like to point out. They thought of monks, but they did I, not think of anti-paladins. I was in the rules team for that. And we specifically were like, <laughs> it's not big. Because Flameblade would also give you the same thing. So flame blade and iron skin can be dispelled. That's true. But those two things would also give you the same immunity. So we thought having a small amount of people that were able to be immune to the fire would be available. It also was available to everybody through flame blade or iron skin, something like that. 
the fact that anti-paladins are always passively immune to it is an advantage that we wanted people to find. So when you guys looked into that and were like, oh, and then ignored the pits of oil, which we had a really fun time figuring out, um, that was awesome. Like for, for a game design to watch and be like, oh, we put a nugget of truth in it, like a little, a little secret and you found it. It was great. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I thought I was breaking the game. I, no, no, I feel no. a lot better about that now. No, we, we designed it to have some stuff. a white belt. No. <laughs> that was... <laughs> well, it depends on how far into the past you dig. Oh, God. No, please. Abgar cannot take it. <laughs> that's terrible. I mean, now uh, that it's more open, you can't dispel an anti-paladin from their flame and their death. Nah. Or command, not death. I was getting that mixed up. Be nice if we could also be immune to death. Uh, rules nine committee. <laughs> no. <laughs> if we give you void touch, you're already godlike. This is dumb. We don't need to give you more passive <laughs> invincibilities. Well, if you give us passive death immunity, then we don't need the void touched. Oh god. You break that synergy. Yeah. That just means you're a solo tank. We don't need that. I, I need that. I personally need that. <laughs> Okay. But no, it's all good. Anyway. Awesome. Um, all right, I so think we kind of got into the weeds a little bit. We did get into the weeds, the, but that's okay, because that's what's going to happen a lot of the time. And part of that is because this is a weird thought process, is that we can give you some general rules of like how to think and how to move uh, forward in certain directions and, and in getting these tactics and strategies built. But they're not going to be perfect, because every situation is a little different. Um, and that's, that's what this separates, like, you know, six, seven, and eight orders and nine, 10 and masters. Cause that, that ability to think on your feet and change is going to make the ultimate actual difference. Um, so if we've got this battle game, this basic battle game of, um, well, moderately basic battle game, it has some of the different, con the different challenges we discussed of castle siege. Um, our overall strategy is to basically get people to the door, protect them and break it down. Right. Yes. Kind of our overall strategy. That's the very basic goal. How we accomplish that can be modified. Um, I know for a couple keeps the, uh, siege, the battering rams, which are literally just like fence posts tied together, uh, were not considered game objects which meant you could pick it up and move it in teleport. What? Yeah. Or in sanctuary. Yeah. Or in fight after death. Yeah. So it was considered a siege weapon, though, so you couldn't technically use it in sanctuary. Okay. Um, so they did think of that one. That's yeah, good. They did think of that one, at least in one of them, I remember. But there was one that it was just a siege weapon and not a game object, and I'm pretty positive we teleported the crew to the door and then let them out as they smashed the the gate down because they couldn't interact with the gate with uh as insubstantial it's two layers of different things but it this worked is kind of blowing my mind like i should pay attention during the briefings yep. this is typical amp carter behavior it's like you would know this if you had listened when they're explaining the rules and i'm just like yeah so i'm gonna wear this and i'm gonna go out there and do this my ADD yeah. says that's a bad idea. Just make up the plan when you're in the game. Exactly. Just, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a very big uh, advocate for winging it, you know? Like, let's see what happens, you know? First comes well, the worst, you still have the, fun. 
I like to read the rules three months in advance and start thinking about how do I break them. <laughs> <laughs> I I think the adage the plan never survives the enemy uh, applies a lot. So I am not a yes. big free planner. Like very loose strategy is fine. I will leave. I you know in my company in Alton. Sorry, I have other people that are really good at that that part, like reading the game rules, interpreting them. Um, that is one of my weak points, I think, as a strategist, as a tactician. But like in the game, like telling people where to stand, when to like fan out, when to contract is uh, is like my strong point, and I think that's that's more what I rely on, as opposed to oh, the game rules say we can do this, so we're gonna do this, this, and this. It's... So the way Soul Invictus always broke things down. I'm not an Ultimate Sar, so I can't comment on how they do things. Mm-hmm. But uh, back in SI, Mitch was always one of the like we would build a, a one of our objective groups around him mm-hmm. for exactly that reason. So and we would never put me in it because I don't hear very well. So uh, <laughs> you know, when Mitch is telling me to do things, I'm like, huh? But that's uh, you point me at an objective at the beginning, and that's what I do because that that's I can't hear shit. It's got so. the goal. So, but that's a really good example of how the the strategies and the tactics are separate but work together if we're looking at that field and aurelius and i've been sitting down and been like okay we know how the rules work a step one this should be a very basic step for anybody that's trying to go for uh orders of battle or paragons read the rules very carefully like multiple times and then figure out how to not necessarily break the rules because a lot of the time, if you find a way to break the rules, it's normally an oversight. So talk to the game designer about that. If you find a way that just ends the game, um, normally that's not supposed to happen. I don't think it's fun to play that way, and it's not fun to play against it. Either. Yeah, exactly. Like, yes. We all paid to be hard. at this event. Don't be a jerk. Yes. If if the game designer created oh, yeah. a flawed oh, game, yeah. uh, that is kind of on them, but it's also on you to make sure that they know that there's a flaw in the game. Like... Uh, for example, I believe, oh, this is a key. No, I think this is a uh, known world war or um, one of the big team fights. I can't remember. Banner Wars. There we go. Uh, Tugin found a, a not quite a flaw, but a point in one of the rules that in order to win the game, you had to collect all of the capture points and they were just like balls you could pick up. So he threw it in a lake. Um. That doesn't help yeah. anybody. Like, no. it technically stopped the other team from winning, yes. But it also, di- like, didn't help them because they also had to control the points. It was kind of just a moot, I'm going to stop you from winning, and the time will run out, and that's that. That's, um, a, that's a very, I'm taking my ball and going home thing. Like, <laughs> look, no one can play if I take my ball and go home. You right, know? And, and some of those things to be you fair. To be fair, Team Polaris did that at Keep 2021 in the Siege Weapon game on Friday. We uh, oh, controlled uh, the ammunition. I mean... We uh, we pushed through, scored one point, policed up all the ammunition, and hit it in our spawn point. And how, ran yeah. the clock out. How dare you call it, we, call uh, it out? <laughs> I mean, that is that is kind of in the same vein. You that, have that's something That's the most you have Dugan thing I've ever done. But the thing is, that, like, they could have got that ammo bag, though. Yeah, the the lake was a little bit of a problem because I think it sank is the the ultimate issue. Is that that's fair? That the, was the ball sank. That's more of a dick move than what we did. We just they had no idea that it was in our spawn point because uh, we we assigned a couple of our more nondescript and uh, non noticeable players to doing that. 
Uh, like I made sure it wasn't Merrick, Dante, me, or Vitalin doing this. I I grabbed a couple of scrub dubs wearing standard issue brown tunics mm-hmm. with a small shield and a crappy sword. And uh, like, all right, you guys, as soon as you see ammunition, pick it up. You know, just don't like in the middle of like, I've got the ammo. Just just quietly pick it up and sort of jog back to the spawn point. <laughs> I think that would have been fun, to be honest. <laughs> just, oh, OK. This is what's happening. That's going, that's... Like, it's less glorious than it. Like, it, it doesn't seem very glorious, but you're going to win this game for us. But that that's part of. OK, so that's part of the deception part of it, of, of a strategy, though, as well is strategies can be very straightforward they can be very simple but they can also have levels of deception um, that are going to bring you an advantage and that making making sure that the people picking up the ammo the thing that you basically needed to win the game uh were nondescript is a perfect strategy of deception it's not it's not hard it's very simple and it it worked obviously because i mean we won that. I was not there for that game because I was still driving with uh, the caravan of of Michael and Q. So, like, but that that simple, nondescript people picking up the stuff, getting it away, perfect, great strategy. The other layer to it was uh, uh, making sure the first push contained me, Cads, uh, Smurf, Vitalin, Dante, all of our heavies pushing really hard on the right flank. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we scored that point, because we knew we were going to, Vitalin burned half his spell list to get us there. <laughs> and uh, Denny burned half his spell list to get us there. Like, we were going to win that engagement. Like, it was one of those, like, we discussed it beforehand. It's like, don't hold back. Don't worry about the rest of the game. Get this point. Mm-hmm. It's... And if you've got a couple of Paragons doing that, then there's very, like, it's going to happen. Right. And uh, there was nothing that team could do to stop us. No, it, like I if mean, they had done the same thing, they could have scored a point too. Doing the, you know, they had a couple right. really good players. They just spread them out and tried to play a. So we showed them that push. We showed mm-hmm. them that drive, and then as soon as we uh, scored that point, we did the whole reset thing, mm-hmm. and then we did another drive, but without burning the rest of our ammunition. Just basically showing us always pushing hard on that same flank. Like this is where the effort is. Clearly, we're trying to win the game by a. Uh, Mm-hmm. scoring points on this side it's like we're we're just out here to distract you and keep you from noticing that the ammunition is gone right i mean that like but look at me look at me look at me I've, I've got a pull arm and a bunch of armor i'm scary we did that twice though which was awesome um because the uh so that game specifically was two teams i think both teams had castles and both teams had a siege weapon is yes. that what it was and then yeah you... the siege weapon was just the 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 koosh ball thrower yeah slingshot yeah Yeah. it was two people holding it whatever it it wasn't great um but it was a siege weapon and that's what you needed to do you needed to hit targets and do stuff like that and then um the point was to have more targets hit at the end obviously the weak part of that is you need ammunition to hit therefore you win a point and then you remove the ammunition from the game or you remove the ammunition from usability on the opponent's team and they can't score any points that's a, a very basic strategy um, the adding deception of we're always pushing on the right side means that they're focusing on that and your opponent has to recognize that's that, that that's a distraction and realize that there's no ammunition. Um, that's a, that's a level of strategy and tactics that I don't think a lot of amp carters have. And once somebody recognizes it, they have to communicate it. Like the big factor of when strategies work too well, if your strategy isn't productive enough to get around what they've done so in this example 
if the opponent's strategy was basically we're going to, you know, defend against our spot, but then also try to get a small team out to collect ammunition and shoot it back at them. Um, if that, that new strategy doesn't work because there's no ammunition, they have to figure out how to communicate to the team that they've switched gears. And that's, I mean, that's where armies have failed in the past is that they've failed to have correct communication or the communication comes too late or something like that. Um, in amp guard is less problematic because, you know, we're only dealing with like 400 people on a field instead of several thousand, but it's the same kind of thing. Uh, they also don't have radios or cell phones or anything like that on the field. You've got eyeballs and voice. Yes, that's true. I mean, you could bring radios technically. Do you want? I would the... want to. <laughs> I, there's that. There's always that guy. There's always that guy with the Bluetooth speaker blasting like music. You know, but don't worry about that guy. That for guy me, uh, for the big battle games, I really think it's important to have somebody who is not playing, who is going around and like. Like an SI, we would have somebody off the field, or not off the field, but out of the fight, finding members as as the chaos is ensuing. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to die unevenly and spawn unevenly, getting people to go to different parts of the field and send them there. And that's that's the closest, that's the best way to communicate in a lot of ways, especially once you like break into the, the courtyard of the castle game, mm -hmm. where you have the second castle door to a siege. There's just so much noise and chaos going on that uh, you need somebody who's basically an eye in the sky uh, directing people where to go. Yeah, the and, and that's an old school tactic of runners, the the runner messengers giving information yeah. and stuff like that. Um, there's an the important thing to remember. Less that they're runners and more they're actually the uh, the the. Honestly, the, the general, I guess not the general, the, the generals, whoever came up with the strat in the first place. But these people are actually like, when they catch people off of the side, rather than running around and delivering messages, they're the ones who are actually in charge. Like when they tell, like, I'm dead, I, I go back to spawn, get respawned. The Soul Invictus runner would be the one telling me where to go, and then I go there. Even if I'm the one that came up with the strategy in the first place, I still go where the runner told me to go because they know where the, the pressure needs to be applied. Right. So it's... So it's, I guess, a combination of both the runner and the field commander. Right. And so there's a there's an aspect and they're unkillable, of that. so. Well, it depends on how the, the game runner wants to let you play with that. Because if they if they say, like, you can't have, I guess, non-coms running around and being informationals, you have to have a com, uh, a combat player, making them something that has teleport or has uh, escape, a lot of escape, like an assassin or a scout or a, a wizard or a healer, giving them those opportunities to get in and out of combat fairly easily it, um, makes them more useful. Um, Anytime a game allows water bearers, abuse that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Water bearers are great. Uh, that's, um, that's how we had our uh, non-coms on the field. They always had water bottles with them. And they were forcing water down us while we were playing. But uh, yeah, they were absolutely doing command and control and they were unkillable because they were the water bearer. So and uh, nobody ever called us on it. No, I think it's a fine tactic. I think that yeah. works really well because yeah. it's it's everyone else had water bearers, too. They just didn't use them for command and control. And I no. I never like, OK, that's fine. That's that is up to. I mean, that's that's using your resources. If you're building yeah, a absolutely. strategy, make sure you understand all your resources. If. Yeah, I, I believe so. The that same keep with the the oil, the burning oil one, which was twenty nineteen. Yes, twenty nineteen. Yes. Um, 
We also created a forest battle game that allowed you to go out in and have two scouts. They were allowed to get driven around the forest battlefield and explain where everything was. You got two scouts per team to explain and basically get to see the area before the battlefield happened. Because we didn't let anybody else back there until that point. Um, that was a fun game. That was, that I enjoyed was. the crap out of it. And I didn't get to play I the battle game, so I was running that stuff. Um, <laughs> that, that was a fantastic team. You guys did a great job on that one. Yeah, I had a all, great time. We had a fantastic team, and and it, it went really well. Um, rel- like We had one hiccup, and that was about it. And it rained a couple times. That was it. But that's a keep. Um, we let the scouts go. So, like, we gave you a resource. The resource was knowing where everything was. And the team that won, that, like, got a lot of points... Their scout literally asked every question possible. Like, who's that? What's that? Where is this? Is this worth points? Or is this only something at whatever? And by the end of it, they had like two pages of notes and a hand-drawn map of the entire area. And they knew exactly where everything was. And as soon as the game started, they're like, all right, you teleport there. Like, you know where it is on the map. That's where your target is. Go. And they ran off and got points because they knew exactly where things were. Their resources... Uh. He's I'm looking there. at I'm looking at Al. He's nodding yes, and I'm like that, uh, I'm like is that was that us? Was that yes, us? That was us. that was us. Oh, okay. yeah. oh yeah, we smashed that game. Like that, <laughs> half of the yeah. other team quit before the game was halfway through because they were losing so badly. Oh yeah, they got they got pushed in. I uh, that was such an awesome game. I was out in the woods like gigging people with my pole arm, and then like uh, uh, at some point I died finally. And so I go back to spawn and Kelsey like is like, hey, we're gonna go find this thing. Come with me. I'm like, okay, so we just go like traipsing like a mile into the woods and find a guy at a table with dice. And so we're like rolling dice with him, we get all these points for our team, and then we gotta like a move a cart back to this other point. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, but it's amazing. I loved that <laughs> game so much. Movement. That was uh like me, Anwar, my brother Wedge, and uh uh one of my man at arms havoc. Uh, Havoc is, plays Wizard. He's He keeps two Void Touched and two Persistence for me. I uh, spent <laughs> 99% of that game Void Touched and uh, abused the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. It was... Uh, we, we used that synergy plus uh, uh, Barbarian Bombs. Uh, like Basically, all the heavy armor stacked up front. Mm-hmm. And we had a couple of pretty good uh, uh, backline casters as well doing mm-hmm. a decent amount of crowd control, but the big thing we did there was curse everybody. If they died without a curse on them, we did it wrong. Right. The, the, so the, field... the whole strategy there was to trip them and make them walk because yeah. it was like a half mile walk back to spawn. Yeah, the, the respawns were very far apart. That, that's part of the resources. You want to know what your resources are. If we're looking at the battlefield, this battlefield was huge, by the way. I'm pretty sure it was. It was a whole back area. It was but... a whole back area. I think the respawns were a total of a half mile apart. Yeah. Like they were they were far if you didn't bring your spot, your um, uh, uh, heart of the swarms, you didn't bring res bots, you didn't bring other people up with you as you were moving your support classes, essentially, if you didn't bring them up with you, you were having to walk or run all the way back to respawn and then pop and get all the way back out there. It's a long fight. Um, oh, yeah. Our, a, uh, our whole strategy was prevent the heart of the swarm with extension dispel. Yeah, just get I rid think of that's it. That's a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, prevent them from doing any of that and my job 
like, I, of course, I, I look big and scary because mm. I, you know, got the fancy wardrobe with the white belt and all that. But uh, my role, uh, my real role there was to apply curses to people with that void touched. Mm-hmm. As soon as anybody on the other team died, I had to find a way to get to them and steal life mm-hmm. to force them to walk. Yeah, that uh, it's real hard. And um, as soon as I saw anybody with the dispel, my job was to fade ba- or fade to the back line and mm-hmm. make sure I did not get dispelled. Yep. It's so that that's a tactic. The strategy and, overall was basically the, the strategy force them to walk. Yeah. Force them to move. Make sure that the, the respawn. So you're just depleting numbers of the opponent as fast as possible and basically pushing them back as you do it. So you can move things around, which was the overall point of the game. You had to move carts from point A to point B uh, or, talk to a person in some location and move a thing from that point to another point. It was a very large map and it was a very convoluted uh, series of points. And it was like that on purpose to make it complicated and to make it tricky. Um, But the people that paid attention, the people that were making those strategies could very easily see where the points were, plan them out and send people there. The biggest flaw in this whole thing was that it's really hard to communicate in a forest. Um, Bremen in our comments just said like signal flags on a flat battlefield. Signal flags are great. If you have a team that understands what the signal flags are, you're basically just using radios with flags. It's great. In a forest, you now have to have a runner system or some other form of communication to make this whole thing work. Otherwise you're going to end up with, uh, some teams or some, some small teams, some brigades, I guess moving in a direction that the general doesn't want them to or not knowing where they're at or getting caught up defending against something and you know moving out of place the communication falls apart in a forest and that's partially why we did such a convoluted game in a forest because it's it's all about communication now how do you communicate to the rest of the team um well, that's one of the brings up another point about uh, strategy which mm-hmm. is that your strategy must be simple it yes. has to be easy to remember. It has to be very simple. Mm-hmm. You have to have a one or two goals in mind for the team. Mm-hmm. And then you have to assign people to those goals. Yes. So that they know their whole single-minded purpose in life is to accomplish that goal. And if you've got a couple of smart people, like uh, Maxim or uh, uh, Dante or uh, oh, hey, himself, or, or Merrick, or like, we know who those people are. Like the people who are going to be able to keep their head in a game and always be thinking about what's next. Uh, make sure some of those people are on each of the objective groups and they know what to do after that objective is completed, assuming it's a finite objective. Like move cart from point A to point B, points are scored, cart's done. Where do you go next? Right. That way they're not just sitting in the woods guarding a cart that's not worth anything anymore. Right. I think that's also part of your resources is know who your team is, know who your strong players are, and then make sure that you allocate resources correctly. Um, Absolutely. That's one of the things that I suffered hard on early on. Uh, I'm six foot one and uh, blonde haired, blue eyed. People tend to rally to me for uh, reasons. So uh, back in the V7 days, I would I, I was de facto the squad leader for a lot of stuff because I also had heavy armor and a pole. And I was the guy in V7 that had that in the Midwest. And uh, I wasn't careful about who was with me. I just would grab whoever wanted to go, you know, hit people with sticks. And uh, we would get torn to shreds on the regular because we didn't stack our team carefully. Like there'd be a wizard and a, a druid on the other team, and we just we didn't even have a bard. We just had like four barbarians and a healer. So and I mean that, and it's like that's, and we just get chewed apart. Okay, so let let's break this down a little bit because we're 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 moving 
in tactics or we're moving in strategies a little bit. So if if first uh if we can make a first rule for strategy to create a good strategy, it's got to be simple. That that thing's got to be simple and it's got to be easy enough to communicate to your team. Like if your strategy is too complicated, you don't have to tell the whole team what all of the strategy is, but at least knowing where everyone's role is, that's what's going to make it easy for you to get from your head to the battlefield. So A, make your battlefield sim- make your strategy simple. B, allocate resources intelligently. If you've got, you know, five or six paragons on your team and there's five or six goals of your strategy or the battle game, go put the five or six spread out. Don't normally put all six in one spot because you end up with the same thing that happened in and then this isn't hard rules necessarily because this in that first in the sorry the second game battle game we talked about where you guys took all the ammunition you put a lot of power on one spot and pierced through the wall and scored a point and then you had to reset that's really a, a good allegation of re- alloc- allocation there we go thank you allocation of resources to break through get a point and then come back but your other resources you were using was a deception and stealth to get your the actual resource of the game hidden. So you created a simple strategy, you allocated resources correctly, and now I think the next point that we should talk about uh, like for, for building strategies is how do you build small teams? What is it? Oh, and also obfuscation. Make sure yes. that, you, that your opponents can't detect what your strategy is. That, yeah. So that was the third aspect to it. So there's the deception, but then we had to make sure that that deception worked. So we had to continuously apply pressure to make sure the other team was looking at me, looking at Vitalum, looking at CADs, uh, making sure they were looking at us and not at what our nondescript players were doing. Uh, so even if, like, if you've got a player like me who's uh, uh, has some significant disability as far as uh, playing as part of a, a a group effort like mm-hmm. i can't hear very well so if you're trying to yell directions at me there's a 90 percent chance i'm not going to hear them or be able to understand what you're saying so it's very hard to get my attention very hard to get me to move so uh using me for stuff like pressure is like that that's where i slot on the battlefield is applying pressure to an enemy team i think that's part of allocating resources knowing your team you know that's right you're, you're right you're absolutely right if if you've got uh if you're building a team and you know that half of your team or or a section of your team doesn't actually have armor it's probably not best to tell them to go play barbarians or paladins because the that that's taking away a lot of power of those classes absolutely um they'd be better slotted as monks or assassins or casters even something especially else. casters right so and if you don't have armor then uh casters are probably the best bet for bringing combat power or killing power to the battlefield or crowd control I think it's, I mean, technically in the way V8's built right now, I think it's technically best to do Druid because Druid is broken and can bring magical armor, which is... Yes. Oh, God. Also broken. <laughs> I mean, Max, you're in the middle of pulling, of, of trying to push for Druid, so you know exactly how much a Druid can affect the battlefield of just... I, yeah, and like, in small games, like just a park, Druid is so stupidly broken. Oh my God. But then I have found at times in like big games, like a keep, like there are times where I'll just, I'll do my stuff and then like die a couple of times. Like, oh, I'm out of things. Like, I don't mm-hmm. have any more enchants. I don't have any of this. I just, I have my bow, my spear, and like, that's it. 
<clears throat> so it's it's kind of funny to me where Druid is. I think on the whole it is broken for sure. Um but uh but yeah it uh it was definitely balanced around very large, very long games and I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. It suffers from the same problem Wizard did back in V7. It's mm-hmm. not quite as broken as V7 Wizard was. That was I don't, I'll give you I don't that. even want to talk true. about it. I mean, it was so bad. <laughs> you could you could very easily see the math behind Wizard because it was one Wizard to ten other players. So that's a one to ten ratio. They're built into the game, and that was never followed. So no, it nope. was terribly unbalanced. Uh, I think Drew a team is of all Wizards like, was going to win. Yeah. Right. I think a team of all druids could get countered. Not well, but it could get countered. Um, but druid also runs into the problem that because... Oh, here's of... the problem with that counter. That counter is a dispel wizard, or a dispel druid. Yeah, I know. It's a, the counter to druid a druid counters is a druid. itself. Yes, it does. Well, that's a problem. Part of, part of the problem with druid and, like, if you put druid up against a team of a whole lot of other classes, like I think warriors might win against them, archers might win against them, maybe. Um, it depends on the archers. If they have if they have distance, yeah, if they have the distance to really plunk them down and use their special arrows, um, wizards might win against them. But like wizard can hard a, counter a warrior too, though. A druid can put armor on itself. It can mm-hmm. fight with a an eight foot spear that's crushing breaking. Um, and it can cast a 20 foot kill spell, like, Mm -hmm. ouch, that's, that's a lot of counters for a lot of things right there. Yep. All happening at the same time. It, it's a hard thing. Let's, let's you, let's bounce off of this. Okay. So when you're building your team, and this would be under allocation of resources, when you're building your team, there is a breaking point when you get to too many druids or too many of a certain class, because, if you have too many druids, you don't have enough people to apply enchantments to. Um, and you have now created a surplus of enchantments with uh, a... Um, wow, I can't do economics. No demand. Yeah, no a low demand, demand of, of enchantable players that can use it. And now Buddy Druid is great. It is fantastic, but it still means two to two instead of the... Or one to one instead of the... I don't know, one to five, I think a druid normally could if they're playing candy druid. Like, one one druid can make five very effective players better through enchantments um, and still have backups. The counter-argument to that is, that I have is that there's uh, several very different uh, druid builds that all mm-hmm. could work together. For example, you've got, if you make sure that at least a third to half of your druids are avatars of nature, then the candy druids can start you know, once the Avatar of Nature burn through their own stuff, the uh, Candy Druids can start buffing them up again. Mm-hmm. Not as well as the Avatar can do to themselves, but it still gives them a significant boost over a, a Druid who's out of ammunition. Right. And then make sure you've got a couple of Dispel Druids and CC Druids, and suddenly you're... Uh, I, I will freely admit that a CC Druid is not nearly as good as a CC Bard, but they're they're still fairly they're still strong effective. at it. They're more like, versatile than a CC Bard because a, a CC Bard is limited to basically command and, and death. A little bit of sorcery, but not much. Yeah, Paladin's completely you know, yeah. hard counter. Uh, yep. Bards. It's and a good thing. My ex- or anti-Paladin hard counters Denny's or uh, Kaz's Bard. Yeah. He doesn't take the death spells. It's... Uh... With the additive of Paladin and Anti-Paladin to the general population's use, it does change how you build a team. 
but I think you broke down kind of how you need to build a team. If you're looking at your team and you're looking at uh, building a team for keep or something like that, which I think this year it's like 12 or eight is a brigade. And then those will be attached in different ways. So it's smaller teams this year. Um, if you're building that team, you kind of still need to look at your overarching. What is the goal? What is the, what is the strategy of each battle game? And I think there's also a scaling factor as well. Like, yeah. How big is the game? How many people do you have to work with? Yeah. Uh, how many people are you fighting against? Mm-hmm. And how long is the objective going to take to uh, accomplish? Yes. If it's like if it's a, a, hold the point and it's an X amount of time. At that point, I'd rather have rechargeable abilities rather than mm-hmm. uh, druids, you know, all up front. Or mm-hmm. better yet, Avatar of Nature, that as long as they can manage to not die or we have enough greater reses, they mm-hmm. maintain their, uh, their, their power level. Right. So... Uh... But you you mentioned a couple of the points, the the things that you want to have on a team. There's basically, well, hold on, I can do this. This this will work really well. Um, if I can make it. Uh, Bremen just asked when you build or team build, are you telling people what to play or making use of what you have? A uh, little of both. A uh, little uh, bit of both. Yep. Uh, if I don't know the person, I have a hard time telling them what to play. Uh, so I just look at what they're bringing to the table. Uh, if I you know, if I've got a group of dedicated people, like uh, Team Polaris had a uh, a group of people that we uh, got together several months in advance to Gold develop fairs. strategies, develop tactics, all that stuff. Gold fairs. Uh, we all, like, we planned in advance who was playing what. So, yes. Um, you have that opportunity I think, to do it. Yeah, like, I Vitality think was never like... playing anything but a wizard. That was pretty much a guarantee. I think he slotted his paladin for a couple of the games, but uh, for the, like if if it was a smaller team game or a we need to push hard, he was slotting wizard. Um, go out. Cads was slotting bard pretty much the whole time. Smurf was slotting uh, uh, druid. Like mm-hmm. we knew that was happening, and we would Can't basically assign that in advance. Sit in. Oh my god! Ah. Uh, versus, <laughs> if we had uh, you know some. We had a couple of yeah, our contingent from, yeah. I want to say, the Black Spire and Northern Lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody there knew them, so we weren't going to tell them what to slot, mm-hmm. even if a couple of them were uh, not slotting ideally. Mm-hmm. It's... So we basically worked with what we had there because we we didn't really have a way to tell them to do something better. Oh, it's... And honestly, it's, the, the game's all about fun. So if you're going to have more fun playing an assassin, even if it's a terrible game for an assassin, by all means, have fun. Yes, we'll uh, um, we'll we'll make it work despite you. So, to me, as far as building a team, um, X factor, like what makes to me what makes somebody a paragon is kind of an X factor with their class, how flexible they can be, how kind of uncanny they are. Um, that goes a long way towards. Oh, we need a lot of warriors for this. Like, you know, if somebody's just ungodly at a certain class or handles a certain situation well as a class you should let them play that um at the same time um sometimes you just need a lot of armor sometimes you need a lot of casters um uh like i was for a long time in si i was kind of hard stuck as a healer just because like we needed that in battle games and i didn't hate it it's my favorite class but um so you're spectacular at it. The trick uh, is to never learn magic so they don't expect anything out of you. That's what <laughs> that I do. That's not how that works. Yeah, no, you just have to be I like do. Dante, who is the living personification of an A-10 warthog. 
<laughs> just like, oh god, two. that guy's coming right at me. Here's Dante just murdering him. Okay, that's done. Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I will say for like smaller battle games, like at Park, I don't want to pick the team. I want to work with what I'm given. I think it's kind of a challenge and a good exercise as far as like learning how to set up strategies and uh, do team tactics as well as command people. Um, sometimes uh, you just uh, don't get what you need and you're going to lose the game, but uh, it's a, it's good to, to give yourself the challenge mm-hmm. to uh, progress as a tactician. And I think, uh, so that's a, it's a great point on when you can do that. Cause when, if you're in the situation of you get to build your team, like at keep on the borderlands or banner wars or no world or, or these bigger events, um, yeah. that is a huge advantage for the tactician, the strategy, all that stuff. It's, it's really great. If you don't have that opportunity, like at most park days, that is your chance to practice weird strategies, different tactics and get opportunities to be, uh, to get better at things that you may not be good at or figuring out how to utilize each class. Cause I mean, very, very early on, if you're looking at the classes, there are some that stand out as like, this is a very good tank. This is a very good DPS. This is a very good CC mm-hmm. and having to use them in different positions is tricky. Cause like sometimes someone's like, well, I want to play a warrior with only two points. It's like, Hmm. There are better classes for that. Yeah, there are better classes, and you're not technically wrong. I'm not. (laughs) I played warrior without any armor for the longest time, and I was okay at it. (laughs) There are ways to make it work. It's just not the ideal setup. But sometimes you're not given the ideal setup. You got to figure out how to make it work. Um, I mean, if we think about most large battle games at kingdom level, you're probably not picking and choosing who every member of your team is and what they're all playing. So you have to kind of get get used to being handed a pile and figuring out how to sort it out and make it work. Um, I think one of the best things I could say about at least at kingdom level is learn your players. Because if you step on the field and you go, hey, I don't know any of you, you're not going to have a fun time building a strategy around a bunch of randos because you don't know mm-hmm. what they can and can't do. Um if, there are ways to do that. Yeah. If I, if you, if I'm okay to digress here, uh, way back in the or version seven days, mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's less applicable to be to V8, but the 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 general idea of it stands. Uh, we were playing a, a castle game in uh, Rising Winds, where the castle would uh, steadily demolish as time went on, and the goal was to hold the castle as long as you could. Oh, that was a good uh, game. It was a fantastic game. Uh, the uh, it was two teams in the castle and something like eight teams attacking the castle, mm-hmm. but the attackers were not class or they were all classed as goblins. So uh, you didn't have to worry about casters coming in. You didn't have to worry about any of that. Just a whole bunch of melee coming at you all at once. And uh, Sol Invictus, both times we were in the castle, got saddled with scrub teams. Uh, what we did was we policed up all the purple sashes we could find threw them on the scrub teams and made them carry the largest shields we could find. Knowing that there wasn't going to be any fireballs or entangles or anything like that coming at the shields, so we didn't have to worry about them being big targets. We just made sure those shields couldn't be broken, sat them down in front of the gates, or the, yeah, the gates, and then SI picked up nothing but poles. We didn't bother with an archer or a caster in any of the turrets. 
we just had pole arms and big ass shields and plugged the get or plugged the gates as hard as we could. That was also in the days when the the twelve to six shot was uh, not just accepted but expected. So uh, we we held the gate or the the gates until the uh, first wall fell because nobody was willing to attack. But uh, yeah, ultimately it was. We had a bunch of scrubs we didn't know. We found a simple enough role that it didn't matter how bad of a player they were. You can stand there with a big hardened shield and it will work. It will be valuable to your team. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a matter of narrow down the uh, the focus of what you need them to do. Find something like extremely simple, but still valuable. Like if there's a choke point, make them tough some kind of way and stick them in it. Uh, if you need ammunition policed up, have them go pick up ammunition and run it back to spawn. Like find something simple and easy to do that's still valuable to the team. That's one of the mean things I do as an archer is I'll find somebody on my team who's maybe not that great at fighting and just be like, hey, if you see any arrows on the ground, you should give them to me so I can keep killing people. That's, that's a fantastic maybe, example. Maybe not a nice thing to do, but it keeps the momentum of the game going. And uh, I believe in giving everybody a job. I think it's part of the, the, your allocation of resources again. You're you're using uh, you're using each player to the best that uh, best use that you can, and sometimes the best use for that player is to pick up ammo. Um, uh, that may not be the most fun role, but it is also a role that lets them get a lot of solo flanks, which is entertaining because if your arrows go wide or something, they got to go run around and get them. And then yeah. they're by themselves. No one's going to pick on them and they can get some kills, which is wildly entertaining. Absolutely. Uh, the other key for... thing is to celebrate their accomplishments afterwards. Make sure yes. that they know that they were a key or a pivotal part of the win, even if they weren't killing people. Mm -hmm. a like, lot. Give them a beer afterwards. Put them up on your shoulders if you're, yeah, like celebrate. <laughs> if your backup allows. Yeah, if, if you're not uh, broken to do that. Yeah. Uh, I think so, uh, that's what Vitalin was talking about uh, in the comment he just made that we did use a bunch of randos for one of the games to keep when we said, hey, you know, go assassin. We're going to do this thing. And I think I, I wasn't part of that because I think I only played the warrior. But you were part of the other half of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've got an example of what we did there, which was, I thought, super smart and entertaining. Um Oh, technically, this wasn't here. Let's just make that gone. So uh, for those that weren't at that keep or didn't know what was going on, there was a castle and there's a set of doors and there was a key or something behind each door and we needed to get all three keys. Um, there weren't barriers for the one, if it's the one I'm thinking of. There might have been like openings on the sides. Yeah, I thought it was just openings. Like I'm just indicating think, these yeah, are doors. Yeah, there were just openings. Yeah. So like this. Yeah, this... but we had to find three game objects that the other team yeah. had hidden behind the right. castle. And there was a segmented section, so we couldn't tran like we couldn't close in on one side and then just run through the rest. That that didn't. Work. Or no, no, no. For this one we could. We were. For this yeah, one we could on that one. Yeah, for this one we could. So I'm gonna delete these. So there were three game objects. We had to find them. Oh, was this one they were protected by a monster? I think it might have been the lich thing. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, he yeah, had that, the okay. one is where we had to break into the separate sections. Yeah, that that was the big phylactery we had to put together. I think this is the one where they were protected by monsters. So there was each key had to be within like twenty feet of a monster or something like that, and the monster couldn't leave that area. And then we had to collect them in order to open whatever. 
um, we did a, a complete deception play, which was awesome. We put, and this is going to be backwards on here, but we put all of our uh, assassins, scouts, and a bunch of other people. Basically, anyone who could teleport. Yeah. Yep. We put them all over there. Um, and they teleported. This is really weird. And then... like it. I, I like the real-time Photoshop. It's like I'm watching Bob Ross right now. So we put them over fantastic. there, and then we put as much armor and scary poles, including the 15-foot poles, on the other side, and they just went for it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the tactic we used to break through there... Because we could have just as easily been bogged down by a couple of hardened shields on that side as well. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the plan was Megiddo and Cubal, uh, who have significant mass, had the 15-foot poles. As soon as they got to that gate, they planted, reared back their pole, and stabbed as hard as they could at anybody inside the gate to physically move them backwards. Mm -hmm. At which point, I dropped my pole. It's like, I ran up with a pole so that they would be expecting, okay, it's going to be a pole fight through the gate, this is going to be fine. Uh, I would like I, I would cut behind cue ball, drop the pole while I was behind him so they didn't see it, bust out two sword. And as soon as they moved the people out of the gate, I was through and backhacking everybody, at which point everyone followed through and uh, we uh, swept like it was a an entire team kill before yes. the next spawn. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure what happened is like we broke through this and then cue ball wandered over here, broke like just pulled the wood from behind the gate and opened it. And then like we started wrecking this team. Yes, like and... I, I ran through. Uh, you can't see my mouse, so I, I'm not gonna. Around, <laughs> but yeah, I, I ran through, uh, killed like 90 percent of them, bottled up the last two or three people in the corner while Cue Ball came behind me, just opened the gate, and uh, 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 and all the rest of the enough. armor finished off the people. Like I got killed right at the end of it, which is fine. That was my job. It, uh, but yeah, we mopped up the rest and it was a, an entire team kill before the, the respawn was called. And it was 30 second respawns. It was fast. It was ridiculous. I, uh, oh, yeah. I was on the defending point, team just... during that play. That sucked. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> about that. I'm sorry, Mitch. <laughs> no, I, I just looked up and saw all the teleporters because I was on the, t the assassin side. I'm like, yeah, I got nothing. This is not going to go well. Okay. So we, sh we should break down why this tactic worked extremely well for two reasons. One... The counter to a lot of armor is CC. If somebody has a lot of armor, you put them in a CC state and you can ignore them for a while. And it's great. Um, we purposely pulled all of the CC away from the armor. Because we put all of our teleporters on the other side. The most people that have CC and anti-teleportation and stuff are, all, are the same people. So your healers, your scouts, your wizards are all the ones that can say, no, you can't teleport or stop you from being insubstantial, whatever. So they all had to run to the other side. So we created a giant flood of wizards and CC over here. And then because everyone else over here was like melee fighters and we had way more armor and force on this side, they had nothing to stop us. It, we uh, also stacked the front with anti-paladins just in case there was a CC Oh my there. god, we stacked the front with paladins, anti-paladins, barbarians. Like, anybody that had immunities were just like, go up front. Because if they tell you, shove, command, like, unless they shove you or stun you, just keep running because you're immune to it. 
We specifically had had three anti-paladins up front for exactly that reason. You can't heat our poles, and you can't, you know, command us to do anything. Um, the Vitalin put it in the comments as well. Like we didn't actually like our Polaris team that came up with this strategy did not bring any assassins. We just told everybody on our team that was on our team in that side that was an assassin or that had teleportation abilities. Like you're all coming over and Smurf's going to run you down the field and it's going to be awesome. And it was, it was super effective, but it, it's such a, it was, it follows all of our rules. Very simply one, we looked at the rules and found out what we needed to do, which was basically just crush the team as fast as possible and then collect the stuff. Um, Kill them all, block them into their spawn, and yep. then we have leisure to find their the, the game objects. Yep. Uh, two, we used the allocation of resources. We did not bring insubstantial and teleportation, but we knew other people would, so we used those people to make our, our teleportation side. And the teleportation created an obfuscation of where we actually wanted to have CC and where uh, we actually wanted to have armor. And then allowed us to, it didn't give anybody any time to counteract it. Like we, as soon as Leon was called, everyone was sprinting. And this was like a football field size thing. We were, we were charging the whole way. So if someone did realize what happened, the time to communicate was 45, 45, 50 seconds. Like it was not a long time for them to figure out what was happening by the time they realized it. So that there's this... a third critical factor at play, which is, like you said, most of the uh, the teleporters were not Polaris. Yes. We did not tell them that the real effort was on the right. We just told them, hey, teleport in, wreck them, do mm-hmm. your thing. That's going to win the game for us. And we didn't tell them why. No. So that when it was their turn in the, the castle, they got wrecked by the same strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what I said in the beginning. Be vague enough. So that they help you and they understand, but at the same time, they don't know what you're doing. It's, it's ties back bad. into yeah, ties back into simple strategy too. We could only tell them half of the plan, and it's, it would still work. Yep. It. I loved this strategy. It was. It's one of my favorite things we've ever run as a Polaris team because it was just. It's so clean and so easy to to do that there was not much to defend against. Like if you knew that was going to happen, if you if you had information or if you thought about this plan in advance, you could have maybe created a counterplay to it. Um, but I would have designated a couple of casters to and, always stay on that left side from the defender's perspective, right? Well, just and, to make sure that there was some kind of CC available or kill spells to make sure that. The uh, the the at least you blunt the advance by having a couple of bodies stopping the rest from running in. Mm-hmm. As as a defender, it was definitely a learning experience. But man, that was such a stupidly effective play that like literally being on the defending side, looking at it as like a an archer druid. I was just like, I have nothing to do here. Like I could maybe CC one or two people, but there's just you know I'm going to be enveloped. In a second. Full team uh, inside of your fort all at once. Mm-hmm. And we have twice as many people because it's a three-team game. Yeah. One of my... Like, uh, we took away the terrain, effectively. One of my favorite defenses uh, when we were in SI, we had uh, basically uh, two wizards on either side, and they just took a whole bunch of uh, 
Oh god, what is the spell called? Where you freeze people in place, it's a point and click. Icy Blast. Um, Icy Blast. And they just Icy Blasted everybody as they came up to the door. Like, as soon as that person would get released, they'd Icy Blast somebody else and block the door up with their own with the enemy. And uh, it it was so effective because they just couldn't get through. That teleport spell kind of gets around it, though. Uh, but it's a great tactic to use, like, on the armored fighters as they're trying to get through. Because uh, they're because they're in armor, they're just that much bulkier and take up that much more space. The uh, wizard on my side for that one, that was... Uh, Mitch, I, I'm glad you told that story because that's one of my favorites as well. Uh, with four people, we held our side the entire time. And uh, our wizard would wait until a fat guy in armor was in the gate. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> because he did not want to walk. You can always take a death. And the right thing to do in that circumstance, if you get Icy Blasted in the gate, is to take a death and walk back to spawn. But the fat guys wouldn't do it. Uh, yeah. I am an avid believer in using psychology in your tactics and strategy. Um, I think it so. works. Absolutely. Uh, like, you know how many times I keep, they just let me walk up to them? Because if you're running with your hands up, like you're about to like fight somebody, they're like, okay, this guy wants to fight. But you, if you just walk up to them, they're like, oh, this guy's just walking up. What's happening here? They don't know what's happening. And then so, then you put your hands up, and then you start killing everybody, and then it's too late for anybody to do anything. There, there's, a, there's, there's definitely a tactic there of like not looking like a predator. It's like an old hunting technique mm -hmm. where uh, when you're going through the woods looking for you know something to shoot with your bow, you don't want to look like that's what you're there for. You want to look like you're foraging around. Because um, okay. prey animals, people in a survival situation, they're going to be looking for... Uh, those predatory tactics. The less scary you look, the more their guard is going to go down. You know, looking nonchalant is also the opposite of that works though. Depending on what like your tactics are, if you look like you're just running in and you have a like this plan of just killing everybody, they're going to see you as a threat and they're going to overcompensate for you. But if it's just you and they send three guys to fight you, that's three guys that are not you know fighting on the other side like you know defending that's that's like quite literally like something out of like world of warcraft playing a tank like you're generating threat by wearing a whole bunch of armor and looking really mean like uh at no more war one year i uh had uh was able to buy a whole bunch of armor right before that event so i'm just all tanked out uh, I, in fact in the picture you posted of me for the uh, announcement for this podcast that's that event and I'm just wearing as much armor as I can. I can't really fight in it all that well, but nobody will step in to find out, but I'm still pulling like four or five people to deal with me as a threat. And uh, I, I know I can't beat them if they, if they come in to fight, but they just, they don't want to find out. So that, okay. This brings up uh, a tactic that um, uh, Mordecai, one of Polaris's Paragon assassins, does and i really really like it and it works very well with uh most teams but it's that same kind of like either extremely predatory or not predatory at all based on what he's doing um and i i know he realizes that the what he's doing is kind of tricky but it's really it really works well so if we build like that strategy that you guys had before of the wizards on the side uh probably an anti-paladin in front i don't know what you guys ran as sidemen uh as like these protectors essentially 
Um, we had a warrior, a monk, a wizard, and a healer. Okay. So let's the healer use... to keep everybody up, the monk to uh, keep the wizard and uh, or keep arrows off of the wizard and the healer. All right. And uh, the warrior to uh, crouch down by the gate and kill leakers. Gotcha. Okay. Let's use it. Let's use a, a slightly modified version of that, but that creates a very interesting tactic. Um, that works because it's based on that strategy of people are either going to be aware of you and want to fight you right away, or they're not going to pay attention to you as much. And if you can switch those back and forth at will, it creates some cool interactions. So if this is your guys' setup and you've got your wizards on the side causing icy blast, if you're assassin, like, and Mordecai does this a lot, he has a horn that he blares, like a little squeaker horn. He'll make a lot of noise. He'll be really aggressive. He'll jump out in front of the anti-paladin and solo and everything like that. So the entire other team, which if we just like mirror this thing and flip it. Now. <laughs> Photoshop is fun. This is Illustrator. Same thing. <laughs> but like if the if he jumps out and the entire other team goes, ah, and they all like, jump this way and then he steps in the shadows you've just caused the entire team to flinch and open up and change sides like it's a stupid it, it's a hysterical move because becoming insubstantial normally causes a pause but you can do that with a druid or a healer or anybody else that can become insubstantial very quickly of just the like i'm scary i'm predatory i'm no longer a threat and that flip is a whole second two seconds of them trying to figure out what to do and that means, especially if Al's your anti-paladin in front, Al's just like, oh, look, your sides, and just kills everybody. Al, this sounds a lot of, uh, this sounds a lot like the, hey, look at me, look at me, and I'm just making noise. Uh, I like to talk. I'm, I'm a talker during the game. Uh, uh, and I just, I cannot stop. It just, that is... <laughs> yes. And, it's so uh, annoying to play against. You go to cast on somebody, and Dante's like, "Hey, hey, 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 hey!" hey and, look at me, look. and your brain just like, "What's that guy doing?" Like, no, idiot. You weren't supposed to attention. Be doing I should it. pay attention to him. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> this goes back to uh, this last keep that we just had. What we were doing, uh, like the quest thing. Uh, I played a wizard, but I, I had a sword, so I was mostly there to fight. Uh, but the whole time, I just kept talking about iPhones for babies, and people <laughs> just kept looking at me, and like, you know, just, I kept pulling aggro towards me, and it, either they could ignore me, and then get beat up by me, or they could address the situation where I was just talking about this outlandish thing, and then get beat up by someone else. And I think that's like one of our, uh, Al and I's, uh, like, uh, tactics that we use in like games where it's like, well, I can't fight as well as Al can, but I can definitely well, You're talk. pretty damn good yourself. Eh, well, see, that's the thing. I'm not. I'm not great, but I'm okay. So if I can, you're good enough to pull people, this off as like you're good enough to present a threat, and it's a credible threat. Yes. So if I'm there and I'm like yelling at people and talking to people, and they're like, well, we're gonna go beat the beat this guy up because he's just sitting there talking shit. If they come at me, I can fend. I can fend for myself for however long, and then that gives my team a chance to do stuff. Or if they ignore me, I can run in and just beat them up. You know, it's it's yeah, a bait and switch. Give the yeah. enemy too many options. Measured response. Yeah, it's just it's like, a... look, listen. Do you want to get beat up by me, or do you want to get beat up by those guys over there? I promise I'll be nice, but I probably won't be. 
Yep. Anwar gets them <laughs> angry so that they do not give a measured response. Either they get oh. no response or way too much response. That's the psychology of the game, though. It's just like... Let's, you, let's you, act. Yeah, it's just like, hey, look, listen, look at me, look at me. And they're like, man, what is this guy talking about? Like, let's just shut him up. And they're not even thinking about the game at that point. They're just focused on themselves and, like, how you make them feel, you know? Mm -hmm. It's great for creating openings, thinning lines, like, doing that. Like, killing the enemy is never a bad thing in a battle game. No. So, uh, and in almost all cases, killing people advances the objective. So, yeah. Right. Uh, fantastic tactic. Love it's, it. it. It's uh, another one of those very, like, we can explain it in, in a very quick sentence. We bait, and then we kill you. It's just, you want to go after this person, or you ignore them, and then the bait becomes the threat. Because it's, in Amp Guard, it's really hard to make a bait that's also not a threat. Um, oh, yeah. It's also the best when nobody knows you. And they're like, who's this guy? Who is this warrior with no armor? And then you're just like, oh, you're going to ignore me? I'm going to run in, shield, shield uh, drop. And just run in with two swords and like flail at anything that can get hit. And they're like, oh, this guy's a threat. So then the next, they treat you like a threat. Mm -hmm. And then they don't see that switch where, oh, the threat was on this side. It's. That man will do a similar tactic where uh, he'll overextend him. Well, at least he'll appear to overextend himself, but the mm -hmm. dude's like a track star. Yeah, the dude so is rock climbing his like, career. Yes. And he can run. Oh, yeah, that, that man can run. So what he'll do is he'll overextend himself, score a kill or not, whatever, that's not important. But one or two people will inevitably try to come after him and kill the pole. Mm -hmm. At which point he runs a, a hook behind his uh, uh, shield buddy, whether that be me or Anwar, it doesn't really matter. So long as they can fight even halfway decently, you now have two people who are sideways to you. You can absolutely smash. So it's similar to Mordecai's, it's just... real. Uh, doesn't rely on being able to go insubstantial, which if you've got a caster who's quick on their feet can uh, end that real fast. Right. Okay. So the, this, the graphic I just pulled up and it's backwards for you guys, I apologize, but on the podcast, it should be straightforward. I'm not hundred percent sure. I'm still playing with this tech, but uh, we talked about this in four uh, V four fighting in small team tactics. And it is, it is very simple. If you give somebody the opportunity to run a poll and they're smart, they'll try to run that poll. And you just create, you created an expected response. You now create a response to that, which is normally backing up and protecting. And now you've created a situation that is bad for them because they are, this is basically a three for one, like three V one in this range. I mean, yes, the poll back here has some opportunity, but they have a person on their board side. They have a poll coming in on their sword side and somebody else right here on their sword side. It, it's a simple play of just bait, charge, backup. And I mean, that tactic will work a lot if people aren't prepared. Like it's it's not even that difficult of a movement to get because it's just two people moving. You as uh, generating that, uh, there's the, the bait. And then the other way I've heard it described is uh, in any two-man team uh, or in group of four, mm -hmm. there will be a hero and there will be a coward. Mm-hmm. If you uh, move aggressively, you'll find out who they are. And if you move aggressively in the right manner, such as baiting that uh, polearm being out of position, the hero will come after them. By the way, the if the hero is off. the polearm, this is a very funny reaction. Um, 
I, I don't think I've seen this very often, but if like if, if this situation occurs and the hero turns out to be the polearm, um, it's bad for that polearm. It's very bad for that polearm. Because like if this guy backs up, he's now put himself in a situation where he has to either choose one of these targets or just run back away, which didn't accomplish anything. Um, I love fighting pole arms. It's more in a one v one situation, but you know, it's it's interesting and it's something else. It's also something that I think a lot of amp card needs to get used to is how to run a pole correctly because uh, oh. the fear factor of a pole is way higher than it should be right now. Yes, uh, I've been cracked on the head by a couple poles, and it's like I, they I can't be that pole- bad. <laughs> I think pull fighting has also become a lot softer in the last few years. Yes, yes, it where has. it used to be a culture of if somebody tries to run your pull, just drop it on them, and like with little concern as to what part of the pull you're hitting them with or where you're hitting them. Because I've I've seen some videos of people try and run a pull and just get cracked in the head by shaft, and that pull fighter doesn't doesn't care at all. That's kind of gone away a lot, and I'm happy about that because this is a hobby, you know. It should be fun and not put you in the hospital. But uh, yeah, the other um, method of uh, that that I'm glad has gone away is if you're out of position for the twelve to six shot, you uh, place your pole between their legs and take a really hard step to the side. Oh yeah, oh, take them out at the yeah. knees. I'm so glad that one's gone away as well. Yeah. Allegedly, you weren't there. <laughs> no comment. Exactly. All I'll say is I've been playing for a long time. Okay, so we've we've been kind of bouncing around, but we've hit a lot of points. So I think we should we we should uh, reiterate a little bit of these things. So we talked about strategy, how to build a strategy, and the things you really want to have. You want to know the rules so you can build a simple strategy. You want to allocate your resources correctly and intelligently. For the most part, don't put all of your resources in one bucket because it's going to end up with that bucket could get screwed. Um, but sometimes that's the right option. And uh, obfuscate your tactics. Your or not your tactics. Sorry, obfuscate your strategy because if your strategy is very very obvious, that means the opponent can build one to counteract you or use their tactics to counteract you very easily. Um, in tactics, th- we start getting more individual because tactics have to be flexible. Like Maxim said, it's it's about reacting to situations more than it is uh creating the win so in in that little diagram we just showed we created a situation to make an advantage but this situation was something that probably was not supposed to happen in the overall strategy or the overall strategy doesn't discuss how to deal with a 4v4 because that's not the point of the strategy the point of the strategy is to deal with the game arc not the individual little fights So your strategies are your giant plan. Your tactics are your little things. The tactics are going to much more matter about your team. And they're, from experience, they're a lot of practice. Like movement as a team is hard. If you don't practice it, you're going to step on each other's toes. You're going to hit somebody in the head with your pole. I mean, you're going to hit your friends in the head with the pole. Or you're going to run into them when you try to do something. You're going to bang elbows practice fighting as a team if you plan on fighting as a team because otherwise mm-hmm. it's a nightmare and it looks really bad like oh, yeah. it's bad 
Um, okay, we talked a little bit about class tactics, but I think we can go in. Let's let's. This is gonna be backwards for you guys again. Let's talk about where most classes kind of fit in these overarching strategies, because they they have positions where they work, but not perfectly. Um, I think I have this in that. I'll repost this again just to make sure it's there. But uh, this graphic is something that uh, Michael, Lily, Raven, and I put together uh, about how building large battle game lines kind of work. So your your heavy armor and shields are in your front line. Your secondary line is your crowd control, your direct support. That's things that are like mending armor, releasing people from states, things like that. Your pole arms and your short range. Um, they're normally behind your front line a little bit. They're not literally on that front line. They get a little mixed when you start having smaller teams because the smaller the team, the less ability you have for a full front line and a full second line. It turns into one more mixed line. Um. Your middle there are some exceptions to that. Yeah, de uh, there definitely these, are. Yeah, it's yeah. We can go into that later. Yeah, it's it's really hard to like compensate yeah. for everything, which is why we ended up going with like general rules instead of being like, okay, the warrior is always a front line because technically, the warrior could be basically everywhere besides middle and heart of swarm respawns. That's that's I've about it. I've seen warriors run like a javelin comp essentially and be pretty successful yeah um it was it was a long time ago and it was basically just one guy but he just had a satchel full of javelins on his back and he'd go around killing pole arms That's and he just fantastic. had two short swords and armor and he was just just a buttoning javelins into people's chests that's that amazon build from diablo 2 <laughs> yeah oh yeah <laughs> um murders we are I've seen a lot of uh, heavy armor and uh, well, I guess you've got heavy armor on the front line already, which means pole yep. arm with heavy armor can be on the front. Yep. It often is. Yep. I mean, it, it's really a waste of your heavy armor if it's not on the front or on a flank. Um, if your heavy armor, for some reason, is sitting in the middle support, like he's got six points and he's not on the front line, he's they're, they're kind of wasting a lot of that armor because it's not defending anything but them. And I'll a, come out and say it. They're sandbagging. Right. Somebody on the front well, line with armor is going to be more effective overall. I think they can also be a stopgap, too. Like, if something happens to your True. front line, it allows you to survive or maybe even turn. Like, if the enemy chews through your front, uh, front line of heavy armor, they might not have enough energy to face another line of medium armor. Um. It's, I mean, that's true. If you can, if you can keep them towards the front and they're the stopgap, that's a really good use of them. Um, because like in a corridor battle, you oh, only yeah. have like maybe eight, nine guys wide, people wide to, to do a fight. If you have 12 warriors, uh, what do you do with those other three warriors? You know, yeah. uh, Corridor battles, I think, are something that's not entirely figured out or fleshed out in Amp Guard. Um, as much as we fight them, they, you know, we think a lot with the the field and not a lot with like uh, tree lines and stuff. Um, I I actually ended up making a hooked pole arm that's supposed to be like a boarding axe specifically for those. 
because you get to these situations where it's like two lines and then the the shields are just staring their mean mug in each other and uh and then the pole arms are like kind of pointlessly poking at stuff trying to break a shield or two and it doesn't move very fast so i wanted to make like a an axe so i could come up and hook somebody's shield and basically peel it down and let my pole arms the other pole arms do some work and uh process of elimination uh get the momentum and the battle going again um i mean that, that really doesn't so, do a whole lot in the way of gate fights no like i bridge wars i think is the one that does the most kind of that limited line of fighting yep. um because otherwise yeah that i think it is extremely rare for us to see a a small section entry that doesn't have either a secondary entry or additional locations for it um i mean like even in the battle game we explained earlier like this space was still two or three people wide this door is four people wide um once you break it down, you can fit four people through, not comfortably, but I mean, you can definitely pack four people on the ground in there with poles mm -hmm. and then another four people behind them with their shields out in front. I mean, you can make a pretty solid wall right there, but like actual corridor or bridge fighting. Yeah, we don't see it as often in Amcard as uh, I'd like because it is a different terrain. It's it's a different opportunity to try to practice uh, different tactics, different strategies. Mm hmm. Also, oftentimes what that, we do, it's like a plateau thing. So these edges are death, and then you just put wizards back here, and they shove people off the edges. Yeah, yeah. The diagonal yeah. shove is lethal. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But like in this scenario, if these are closed in walls and stuff, this is hard. It's which a which actually brings in a a, a good uh, or an interesting study of uh, risk management versus uh, advantage. So if you've got that limited entryway where you can only put a few people across and it's got depth to it, uh, like the 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 castle drawing you've got there isn't ideal because it's actually about a six foot deep gateway mm -hmm. rather than being a, a thin wall. Yeah, if it's, it's a thin wall, then you've got basically lines, but you can only move a couple people through. If you've got that depth to it, that means if you you can shove four people to the front of it and a holding action. There but you then you've got a, a large line of people that all have availability to attack those four. So you've got a 4v many. Or if you uh, decide you're you're good enough and you're confident enough that you're not going to lose, then you can actually cede most of that gate space to the attacking team and uh, have a large semicircle attacking the people that are trying to break out of the gate. But you have to be very confident that you are not going to lose ground and not going to allow them in if you're going to do that. Yeah, so... For those so. of you that haven't seen the Keep Castle, and by castle, it's really a fort wall is what we're talking about. Um, no, no, my boy made that castle. It's a it's, castle. <laughs> it's, it's a gatehouse. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a gatehouse. Gate, no, no, no. It, it's great. It's fantastic. For the ability to put it up and take it down, it is awesome. Mm -hmm. There is a legit Endlessly castle. Thankful. Yeah. <laughs> there is a legit castle in Texas that they use for Castlemania which I have not been to and I don't have drawings of, but it's like a two-story fort made of cinder blocks. It's cool. Damn. Awesome. Uh, but those, the the like the basic drawings that we're, we've been doing are very, very simple because the more complex we make it, the more specialized the environment is. So if you've been to Keep, you know that the actual fort castle thing is a door with a hallway behind it that supports two towers on either side that can hold about 
I want to say comfortably four people, but you can jam six people in there if you really want. Um, yeah, if they're really on, friendly, yeah. Yeah, if they're really on friendly. Top, yeah, on top and on the bottom. Yeah, because there's a space underneath here as well. And this, the door... I've always advised game designers to disallow people from going underneath those uh, uh, platforms because there's a lot of sharp stuff underneath there. Yeah, it's it's one of those spots it's that it's not easy to close it off. No, it's hard to it's hard to close it off without adding extra plywood and stuff like that. But there are these spaces so that when somebody comes through the door, um, they don't just come through the door and then have an open area. They have to fight through. I think six feet, six to eight feet. You built the castle. Do you know how big that space is? Uh, on <laughs> the old castle, it's about six feet. On mine, it is exactly six feet. Okay, so you got to fight through six people. Yeah, I'm just going to flex right now. Outthrown <laughs> Shade, his stuff is exactly made to the specifications. Uh, Noah whipped his together at the last minute because he was asked to, uh, as a sort of a, hey, um, Noah, you made a castle before. Can you make me another? Yeah. You have three weeks to do it. <laughs> uh, I had an entire year to build mine and a CNC shop. So that, Right. Yeah, so I had advantages. <laughs> The, the castle entryway is actually uh, terrifying to go through unless you've cleared it. Because in every keep I've been to, which is now six or seven, um, I don't think I've ever seen less than four people in a lot, like four people deep in that space. They are back to back or back to chest in that space a lot of the time when they're defending or attacking. Um so you're not clearing out, you know, busting open the doors and then breaking through one person. You're breaking through four or five, most of the time, heavily armored people in a bunch of enchantments with people on the sides constantly fixing their stuff. Yep. It's it's hard to get through. Um, I think that's the closest most of us get to, like, uh, corridor fighting without going to Bridge Wars, obviously, because Bridge Wars is all about bridge fighting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the tactic of risk management versus gaining advantage from a wider front is absolutely applies at bridge wars. Mm -hmm. And it, um, which is, I, I related to keep because that's what everybody knows, but it's equally true at bridge wars. Yeah, I know uh, Denny, who's been on the winning team for bridge wars five or six times now, um, plays a lot of CC right behind the warriors and the the paladins and anti paladins in front because this spot here. If you can hit like three or four of them and make them unusable, they can either choose to sit there and be frozen, stunned, whatever, for a period of time, or they can die, run back, respawn, and come back, which is normally faster. But that's still depleting the enemy's numbers and allows your team to keep pushing forward. Um, with Paladin and Anti-Paladin now super open, I don't know if we're going to see as much of that CC, because a lot of immunities now in Barbarian, Paladin, and Anti-Paladin. I think that the, uh, uh, Paladin and Anti-Paladin changed the meta a little bit because this past Bridge Wars, I was there, and I was on the on the last match for first and second, and there, there wasn't a lot of Paladin and Anti-Paladin stuff that I saw. It was a lot more, hey, let's have warriors and, like, frontline fighters and then a lot of support, you know, to them. And it turned into who can keep who off of the off of the objectives because it wasn't just like a, a one bridge thing. It was like one main one and then two side ones that was very 
it was very interesting. I got to run around as a warrior and like just immediately drop my shield, get the two swords out, and just run around and see who I can fight to uh, let my team push forward a little bit. And it was super interesting. I had a lot of fun. It was the, the first time I ever done Bridge Wars, and uh, I didn't think we would make it to the last match. But, I mean, we did it. It was, it was a lot of fun. One thing I'd, I've always wanted to try in a small team game like Bridge Wars, but I've never had enough friends with armor to do it, is uh, running 100% Paladin comp. Uh, as soon as Leon is called, everyone pro-mags themselves and just charges forward. That's a lot of power. The trick is having enough armor that everyone has armor. I mean... Because yeah. if you don't yes. all have armor, then why are you playing Paladin? I think this this is what happened. Or, in, in a sense, this is kind of what happened this last Bridge War. Uh, it was a lot of people who were there as casters, ready to like supply the, the support and the CC. But at the same time, they had decent stick backing that you know that casting up and it was either you know you're there and you're gonna like get blasted with spells but or if you can negate that then you have to fight with somebody who knows how to fight mm -hmm. so the armor is critical yeah yeah because if you've got a whole team 10 people with four points of armor from head to toe and they're all pro magged that's a hard thing to break mm -hmm. even if you've got a dispel druid the amount of distance you have to cross they'll get if they're absolutely spectacular, and I'd hand them a paragon on the spot for it if they can get three people dispelled before the paladins are among them and slaughtering. Mm -hmm. It's it's casting while being That's charged a... that is super hard. Yeah, they also had like an anti magic zone at this last bridge wars, and that was that was pretty interesting. That kind of changed how things were gonna go. I mean, that's one of your resources. You want to, you look at the battlefield, you realize an anti-magic zone. If you've got a bunch of warriors that are out of uh, ancestral armor, that's a pretty good spot to sit them because now it's literally a stick fight and six points is more than everything else. Yep. It's easy to hold. You, you, uh, I think at the last thing, it was like Ferrum Crux who was defending the middle zone pretty heavily. So it's just like, okay, like they have armor and they have poles. And we had our own poles that were like, you know, fighting back and forth with them. Uh, it just turned into, can I get behind them? And if I get behind them, like, I just run up on them and, like, take all that armor away. And as soon as my team sees that I'm doing that, they start pushing. Because then it's just like, uh, which threat do you deal with? And, yeah, uh, yeah no, it was great. Um. Okay, where were we? Oh, we were talking about class class tactics and things like that, building your using your classes and different things. Um uh the other point we've got written down that I think we should hit on before we we go to like storytelling or like we've been doing storytelling this whole time, but we can go to more specific <laughs> storytelling. Um how to make your tactics and your strategies work together. And my take on it um is more make sure your tactics aren't counterproductive to your strategies. And that's about as best as you can get. Cause it's not, it's really hard to build tactics specifically for a strategy. Cause the strategy is going to be too large to count, to like actually care about your specific tactics most of the time, unless you're depleting a resource of some kind. I think there's a, a little bit of synergy there in that, um, uh... 
first you have to have a simple enough strategy that everyone can keep track of what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So they, if they know what they're supposed to be doing, then uh, it's a lot easier to do take small actions moment by moment to advance that goal. Mm -hmm. Rather than uh, if the strategy is too complex and people aren't sure what they're supposed to be doing, and uh, the average amp guarder will just give up and start killing people. And if they're supposed to be the, the sneaky part and they start generating a lot of aggro and a lot of threat, then suddenly strategy's out the window. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so I think it's basically the culmination of everything we've been talking about. Keep your strategy simple and uh, make sure your tactics match what you're supposed to be doing. Like if you're supposed to be advancing, you know, off to, into the woods to, uh, you know, roll some dice with a guy, then you probably shouldn't be you know, making a lot of noise and, you know, hunting down groups of enemy players, you should probably be quietly moving off to the table with the guy with the dice, like uh, Kelsey and uh, or Maxim did. Mm -hmm. So, like, they, they match their tactics to the strategy. Mm -hmm. Then there's also, uh, like you said with or earlier, with the resource management, resource allocation, where you have to uh, match your strategy to the available tactics. If you don't have armor, don't build a strategy that requires armor. <laughs> It doesn't go well. No, it does not. Uh, Sol Invictus, the one big weak spot we had was armor. Uh, there were me, Maxim, and one other guy that had any real amount of armor. And uh, uh, Maxim's armor, unfortunately, doesn't allow him to fight very well. Uh, mine allows me to fight reasonably well. My newest kit since basically the last year of Sol Invictus and then post-Sol Invictus, I can fight almost as well in armor as without but that didn't help us in those old days. Mm -hmm. But we built a lot of strategies that required creating space and uh, uh, allowing our casters to do work. So it was, it was, our tactics were built around the, the resources that we had available, and then we would build strategies around, we're not going to be able to do basically a, a, a football push because we're not going to survive it. Most of our polls are monks. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is uh, kite until we have a numerical advantage and then push in specific spots at specific times. Yeah. So it's a matter of, yeah, then slotting our resources appropriately. So mm -hmm. I kind of meandered a little bit there. Hopefully that made sense. No, it made a lot of sense. And it's the 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 allocation of resources, even on a smaller scale, because uh, like you're a nightmare with a pole, but if you also are the only one of the only two with armor, it's probably not great to put you on the front line with a pole. It's probably better to give you two stick or sword and board so that somebody behind you that doesn't have the armor can be the pole and be a little bit more protected for longevity. Yeah. And unless you can find out where you're making that sacrifice, but no, I'm a hundred percent with you. Like my armor does not last near as long and do, doesn't do my team near as much good. If I'm the only one with it and I'm using a pole arm. Mm-hmm. So 100% with you there. Mm -hmm. The other thing to think about is what size team. Like we touched on that earlier, earlier, and then we proceeded to only talk about, or mostly talk about large team games. Mm -hmm. So large team games, you're going to have a, a decent mix, and you should plan around having a balanced team, and just you know a few tweaks here and there with uh you know the folks you know maybe like okay we're a little light on casters. Uh, hey Maxim, do you mind playing healer or uh, druid this round instead of warrior? You know just you know making sure you maintain your balance versus smaller teams like 20 people or less. That's when you can start looking at uh, uh, indexing very heavily on a, you know, a certain aspect of the game. Mm -hmm. By definition, those games are going to be much shorter. 
so you don't have to worry about your opponents figuring out a counter and then gradually adjusting over the course of the game. All you have to do is worry about bum-rushing the objective and ending it as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, the size of the game dramatically changes the uh, the how you build your strategies. And the, then from there, that'll inform the taxi, tactics you use. Yeah. Example being like what we talked about with a, a, a team of 10 or 20 paladins for bridge wars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you did that in uh, at keep, uh, the dispel druids have enough space, enough time. They'll, like they'll they'll strip your pro mags, and the, the archers will put you down, and you didn't do a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But in a situation like bridge wars, where it's a restricted space and it's small teams, indexing really heavily in a sp- certain aspect can actually pay off quite a bit. Or yeah. if you've got a bunch of warlords and you don't have armor, all of them play wizard, throw out kill spells, throw out CC, and then single sword your way through whoever's left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you can, yeah, strategies like that can work with small teams. It's, it's, it goes back to reading the rules. I guess it's also reading the field part of that, but like, I think I count anticipating what scale it's going to be. Right. Tail your strategy and your tactics to the scale that you have available. Mm -hmm. You don't expect to have a full front line of warriors in a battle game that's going to be you know, 40 or 60 people. There's not that many people that have that armor. I mean, you're going to have two or three warriors on the field. Yeah. You're going to, you're not going to have that many. You're going to have a lot. I'll be honest. If you, if you look at the class statistics of how many people play, what classes at, at, uh, kingdom events and then inner kingdom events, assassins and barbarians are very, very common. So learn how to use those. Um, Unfortunately, Which we did it. Keep. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of those barbarians and assassins are not going to be wearing armor, which creates a different problem. Um, but it, it... it also creates another opportunity. Uh, keep 2018 back on on story time. Mm-hmm. Our most effective gate clearing strategy. Uh, we would have the anti paladins go forward, batter the gate down, mm-hmm. and directly behind us, we had every barbarian on the team paired up with somebody who had a stick. As mm-hmm. soon as that gate was open. Whoever was behind that barbarian hit him in the chest. They all fought after death and cleared the gate. Mm-hmm. So even four to six people deep, if you have eight barbarians all fighting after death, swinging, crushing, breaking, uh, you can't repair armor fast enough to keep up with that. No. So they would immediately sweep the gate, and then we'd have our uh, warriors right behind them charging through to bottle up the team at the next gate. I while would... the anti-paladins all respawned, got the battering ram, moved on to the mm-hmm. next. I would we, like... We, yeah, I would like to point out when you do a barbarian bomb and especially in a small space, please do not jump at your opponent because it will either hurt you or them. And I've seen it like oh. four or five times at keep. Um, <laughs> I know you're in Probably like, while we were doing that. No, no, I don't I don't remember any of that, but I was on the I was on the other flank dealing with casters and teleportation walls. But like I've seen it several times at keep where a barbarian gets smacked in the back, goes into fight after death, and then immediately leaves the ground to chest charge somebody else. Don't do it. You're going to get hurt or you're going to hurt someone else. And I've definitely seen three suspensions from that. So in a barbarian bomb, when that happens, play safe, but aggressively. Just my PSA. Yes, that's fantastic. That's definitely something to practice for barbarian is always be ready to die and have a plan for what you do when you die. Mm hmm. Because I think that. I think that's what that comes from is not having a plan and not being prepared and just mm-hmm. like panicking a little bit. If 
if you're not making it, if you, if you don't have a target or a goal when you go into fight after death, because you only get three, two, three, three, two, two or three, two. Uh, it's two. No, I know two. what it is. It's two, and you get if the rule changes goes through, you'll get three. That's what it is. Yeah, was, that's what it is. That's what it is. Okay, uh, but if you get you get two, you got to use them intelligently. If you just use them kind of randomly, you're wasting a per refresh ability that can be super effective. And we talked about this in the the Paragon Barbarian episode. Plan your fight after deaths because, like, if you do it on the front line and you're not actually getting through anybody or, like, they have enough space to run away and waste your seven seconds, your tactic just failed straight up. Like, it didn't do what his goal was. It didn't work. But if you're on the back line and you just took out, like, the heart of the swarm, a bunch of their casters, their gummy mummies and things like that, that's a lot of kills that you might not be able to get otherwise because you died to get back there. Use it smart. Gummy mummy. Well, Gummy yeah, mummy. in a lot of ways, I think uh, fight down. after <laughs> fight after death functions kind of like how a hand grenade functions in like modern day <laughs> tactics. Like you can either use it to wound and incapacitate a lot of people in a tight space, or you can make it so the enemy like is an area of denial thing mm -hmm. where you want the enemy to spread out, so then you're like <clears throat> your warriors can charge in and mop them up. So. That's yeah. it's something to kind of communicate, and I have seen like barbarians who will like run into a fight knowing they're gonna lose, put their hands up, and soak a bunch of blows to the body, and then go fight after death, and they have their arms and legs. Mm -hmm. So counter tactic is uh, hit barbarians in the arms and legs. Yes. Or play anti paladin and uh, brutal strike them. <laughs> yeah. Nope. <laughs> like nope. Stay down. Um. Okay, what we were talking about before, I just lost it. Uh, uh, strategy and tactics working, working together. together. Okay. Uh, um, anybody else got any how to, to work them, how to put them together and make them function? I no, guess thanks. just talk to your team. Talk. Yes. Have a conversation. What can you do? If you talk to somebody and you ask them, what do you know? Like, what 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 do you like to do? And then adapt your either your tactics to help them, or be like, "Oh, I can help you with this," or "I can do this. Can you help me with this?" Type of thing. Mm -hmm. Just have a conversation with your team. A lot of people don't talk to each other, and it's like it's it kind of it can make them or break a team. Yes, um, I think this also goes back to knowing players. Uh, I'll Definitely. use an example from this last keep. They were re-separating teams out, and they decided to put a player named Mabtic. If you know who that is, good job. If you don't, you should learn who Mabtic is. Mabtic is the first, maybe not the first. Battlemaster. I he's, think he's the first Battlemaster out of Rivermore, right? Uh, no, he's from uh, Emerald, Emerald Hills. Hills. He has oh, four yes, Paragons. He he's got all the caster Paragons. He's an extremely intelligent player. And they're like, yeah. And the person that was separating up teams didn't recognize who he was. And he put him on the team with Polaris. And I looked at Maptic and went, they don't know what they just gave us. Because they put the power player with the power team and didn't ask questions. Every um, time I've seen him has been at Rivermore stuff. So I just assume he's from there. Yeah. But it, it's it's learn who players are. And if you're if you're more attentive to the national uh levels and scales and like what's going on, it'll get you a lot farther. Because when you can recognize who people are. 
you can kind of keep a mental Rolodex of what they can do. Like, I know right now if I see Ferex on the field with a Monk Sash, I don't really want to go near him because Ferex moves like crazy. He's very fast. He moves around a lot. He's on his path to Warlord or got his Warlord. He's very, I think he's he got, got his Warlord. He his he warlord. Got warlord. Oh. Right. He moves around a lot. And when he's playing Monk, he's got two stick and he'll block everything and then charge you and take you out. I don't want to deal with that problem. So I'm going to walk away. Knowing who other players are, knowing who the players on your team are will get you so much farther than just like i'm me and i don't know who any of the rest of you are so i don't know what you can do so i'm going to assume you're all noobs because that's going to get you screwed sometime yes i am a noob <laughs> the other end of it is uh don't be afraid to uh let the game to or the, the the game designers know they're fucking up if one of the teams is too stacked because <laughs> everyone's there to have fun and uh Mabtic absolutely let them ruin the uh, other team's day. Uh, I, no, 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 no. We pointed it out. We were like, you realize Mabtic's got four Paragons, and you just gave us Alex. Alex has also got two Paragons, I think two Paragons, and both of them are on, like, the V9 committee uh, um, focus groups and, like, no metas and chats and stuff like that, and the person separating teams went, I don't care, and I went, great. <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> You're okay, so, that was fantastic. Uh, I loved one. that. Yes, it was not a good plan for them to go. Hey, here's a paragon, and another paragon, and another paragon, and another paragon to go with your already twelve paragons. Have fun. <laughs> Learn the players on the field. Uh, anything else about how to put tactics and strategy together and building them together? No. Mm. All right. Um, so I've got a note down for favorite general strategies, things that work in most battle games. Um, uh, as as three of us play in mostly Polaris, Maxim, you want to share your favorite strategy or tactic that works pretty well all the time? Yeah. Uh, so my favorite strategy is I basically look at the two teams and give everybody a number between one and ten. Uh. Typically, a Warlord is going to be anywhere between a 9 or an 11. Some are 12s. They just have that raw killing power, and it takes uh, it takes a lot to kill them. Um, uh, so I will look at that. I will assign everybody a job. Um, you know, like some people are going to be on ammo detail. Some people are going to be watching your back all the time. Uh, they just don't have as high a killing power, or they don't know what they're doing, maybe. Like, it's just kind of, they're new to the game and they don't understand the classes yet, what have you. Um, but, and I, I I believe in, like, telling everybody they did a good job, you know. And, uh, but give yeah. people jobs. Um, and then usually I will split my teams up into two, where I will have what is essentially uh, an assault team and a fire team. Uh, the assault team is going to be smaller. Typically, it's going to be high mobility classes, druids, monks, mm -hmm. um, people with enchantments, uh, maybe some like faster uh, like combat medic healers, um, and uh, and then I'll have a uh, my my other larger team is going to be tanks, uh, long range assault, uh, archers that sort of thing. And one team's job is to basically meet the enemy and slow them down, uh, skirmish with them. The other team's job is to come in and harass, attack, disrupt, and kill. Um, 
that's my go-to strategy. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, I really that's like where the I, number assigning. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think there is like a, a large numbers game to things. If you learn people's strategies and learn different tells, you can tell how good they're going to be in combat. Like I've seen people who just cannot you cannot you have to kill them with at least two on one pressure mm -hmm. and that's that's another strategy is i will tell my team like it doesn't matter how good the enemy is typically if you swing at two different places on them you're going to hit flesh mm -hmm. like uh especially when you're dealing with a warlord or somebody who's studied one on many tactics uh no matter how good they are they're still human and if you and two other guys hit them all at the same time in a different spot that has to be open you're you're going to get effects. Mm -hmm. um, some people are good at countering that and practice to counter it. And I've, I've watched some miraculous fighting on the field where somebody just like really guessed where their opponents were going to swing at them, blocked them out and killed them. But you know, those are rare. Like I said, some people are very few people are twelves. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's, but that's how I look at it. The, the number thing, I think I subconsciously do that as well. I really like the way you put it, though, because giving everybody a number makes it a, a mathematical equation instead of, like, a, a complicated levels of skill and different abilities yeah. and whatever. Um, it, it makes it very straightforward on how to get from not knowing what the opponents can do to knowing what the opponents can do and, mm -hmm. and having a, a number value to assign to that. Um. I like that a lot. I would highly recommend that for anybody. And that also falls back into knowing who people are. Because, I mean, if you look at the field and you see... Uh, if you see Lily and Delos and you don't know who Lily is, you're like, well, Delos is definitely scarier. But on a battlefield in a battle game, Lily is definitely the scarier player. Um, mm -hmm. Battlemaster, four or five Paragons, Warlord, like, fantastic, great. Yeah. But... If you don't know who they are, you're going to underestimate that player and they're going to kill your team. It's yeah. Know the players. And and like a one is like a day one newbie who doesn't know their class, doesn't even mm -hmm. know all the classes. Um is still timid with weapons or is like overly ambitious and is going to get into fights they just can't win constantly mm -hmm. and die and deplete resources. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, like I said like Lily is a 12. He is going to destroy everything you throw at him mm -hmm. it's very hard to deal with that and uh but i also the thing i also really like about this is that it does give a very straightforward uh math behind a 12 is still a 12 but if you throw 14 ones at a 12 someone's gonna get lucky yeah <laughs> i mean they they still have a back so or or you're gonna get a really good highlight reel out of it yeah i mean if they, yeah. if they play terrible i okay we've all seen that actually like when the warlord decides to play backup and like figure out how to kill 14 people in a row because they jackie chan that thing and they line up to fight him 1v1 yeah, the, the kung fu minions yeah that is oh, i love that it is hysterical to watch but like if you're watching that's my favorite that, thing about forest fights is they almost force kung fu battles they kind of do and the, like they unfairly advantage warlords. Yes, because you you can't gang up on them. No, you can. You just have to go through the woods, and not a lot of people want to go through the woods. You could follow Raven's rule on it. If there's a puddle or a lake, and you're willing to jump in it, and they're not, you win. Uh, going back to that, uh, 
that would battle a keep. Uh, Raven took one look at me, saw that I was like a little bit armored up, and he's like, oh, hey, you, come with me. And we just like walk through branches and trees, and the other team is just like, oh, these guys are not stopping for anything. Cool, let's throw everything at them. And then it was it was insane to watch us Raven go to town on these people and just me in the back being like, oh yeah, here, I'll help you here, and then I'll help you over here. And then meanwhile, the other like the rest of our team is going to town on whoever is not opposing us. Mm-hmm. That's just so cool to see. If if there's a terrain and you can go through the terrain and other people can't, that's an advantage. Use it. Um it's another reason to get leg armor because like poison ivy and brambles and spiky stuff is all over the place in the woods. And if you have leg armor, it's really hard for it to get to you through gambeson, steel, uh, aluminum, extra layers of padding. All that stuff stops poison and ivy and thorns. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Your feet dry while you're at it. Yes. I didn't, I didn't even think about the poison ivy. It's... My uh my favorite story along those lines is uh keep twenty eighteen, uh during that big complicated woods battle, or was yep. it twenty nine? No, it was, must have been twenty nineteen because it was the big complicated one. Yeah, it was twenty nineteen. It was before uh, the thing. My brother and I have almost identical kits, and we're brothers, so we look alike. Yeah. Uh, I was on the main trail, you know, doing my job of cursing everybody on the other team, and uh, my brother was wandering through the woods doing his thing which uh, I'm not sure what he got assigned, but he got assigned to an important job and did it. But he, at one point, ran into a large group of uh, enemy players. Uh, he had his shield up, so they didn't see his barbarian sash and didn't know who he was, and we look alike. So they, they, they saw him, looked at him, he brought his equipment up like, oh shit, I'm gonna die, and they took a step back. So he was like, oh, <laughs> oh, they think I'm someone else. Oh, yes. <laughs> so he then carefully moved and did, you know, microaggressions towards them to maneuver them such that uh, they had their backs turn, or turned to our main group and we slaughtered them. So That's he was then free to go do his objective. Awesome. Uh, Jamie did that at his knighting event in CK. Um, he dressed up as a pirate for like two battle games. And he had a beard on and, uh, no, sorry. He dressed up like his, his assassin build. So he had a cloak, this cloak on, he had armor on, he had a, a face mask piece of helm. That was really cool. And then they got to the last battle game, which CK has a tradition at spring war that the people getting knighted there are part of a battle game. And this one was kill Lily as many times as possible. Um, and then he dressed up like a pirate. He put on a muscle suit. He had a giant beard. He had a different face mask. And he put his squire, who has a similar build, into his armor he'd been wearing all day. And they're they were terrified of him all the time. Like the whole nobody wanted to fight him 1v1 because they're like, oh, it's Lily. He's gonna kick your ass. And Lily's just dancing through the back line as a pirate with a single sword and no class. And he got killed zero times that battle game. Cause he just ran away and Ty Tiberius looked like him enough that when people are like, I don't really want to face him. And when they finally killed him, they're like, yeah, we got him. And then he pulled up his mask a little bit to show the scruff of his beard, which is red, not brown like Jamie's. And they went, shit. It was great. It was a good time. Fantastic. <laughs> using using that That's level awesome. of deception, use it because it's fun. Oh, Absolutely. If you're, do not interrupt your opponent in the process of making a mistake. <laughs> yes, yes, very much. 
Um, uh, okay. Dante, you got a favorite uh, strategy? General strategy? Uh, I have a uh, favorite tactic. That works too. What uh, is it? It's a little bit on the smaller side. I, I'm a big fan of like, you know, like in Amgard, you're supposed to declare your enchantments and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of times when other casters in the opposite team, they won't let you. Mm-hmm. They'll just go off and start popping off like the spells and stuff. So if you just step onto the field and you step at the other team, they'll start trying to dispel you. And they'll, they'll, you know, before you can tell them, hey, I don't have any enchantments on me, they burn like two or three of them. Mm-hmm. And if you keep doing that nonstop, they won't even realize that they burn through all their dispels before you're like, okay, here we go. Throw your ancestral armor on, mm-hmm. do this, harden your shield, or do this other stuff. And then all of a sudden they can't counter you. Right. They're, they're yeah. down to the, the rechargeable ones, which is just a one pop. Now I got to go back and recharge it. Exactly. So it's like, let them let them react to you and assign you a threat level at like your, it's a very Dragon Ball thing. No, but it makes sense. Where you go in at your base power level and, you know, they start fighting you and stuff. And then once they like throw everything at you, then you, you power up a little bit, you go in, you beat the crap out of them, and then they power up some more, and then you throw everything on yourself, and then you go hard on them. Mm-hmm. Like... Like who who would have thought anime teaches teaches you stuff, you know? <laughs> uh, but no, I'm a big fan of that because it's like it escalates your fights. And if you're a, mm-hmm. uh, a fight junkie, you're like, oh, the fights are only getting harder here, and, and it's awesome because that's that's fun for you. Mm-hmm. Or if you're like trying to help your team, you're slowly pulling more and more aggro towards you mm-hmm. because if they think that you're not a threat, they only send so many to oppose you. Then you die, then you come back. They start sending more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And eventually you got like uh, a lot of people worried about where you're standing and you're just one guy. Mm-hmm. So it's... I think that's that's a big thing that I'm a very big fan of during like smaller games or big games where people know you. Mm-hmm. If people don't know you, they're just going to ignore you. And then that's going to be their downfall too. Right. If they're if they're not doing their homework and learning who like the hard players on the team are, they're not gonna know what to do. It's it's a tactic I've been pushing for a while. Like in a lot of especially, I mean, I, my first keep, uh, we saw the giant, um, I called them god figures because you'd make a an over enchanted player. You'd make somebody with every enchantment on the the possibility, and you drop them on the field as soon as the game started. And the first response was DMAG. And it, it was just one player with a bunch of enchantments and it was countered by a DMAG. And we saw that over and over again. And it spread out a little more. And we kept seeing more players getting more enchantments. But all of the enchantments were being handed out right away. And they weren't being delayed and later. And I was just wondering why we weren't just waiting. Like, why weren't you waiting until the last two minutes of the game to make that push? Because then you're they're all out of stuff. If they're doing what they've been doing in the past metas... Now your druid has a full list and is ready to go and just piles it onto somebody and they don't have enough DMAGs to deal with the problem. They're screwed. They they miscalculated. They, they're out of the resource they needed. Um, so I've been really enjoying watching you do that because a lot of people's first response to an armored 
armored warrior is DMAG or CC. And you're it's like, great. Like, okay. All right. I hear, like, with a paladin and anti paladin, they'll awe you. Like, okay, um, I'm odd. I'll be back. And then you come back, they'll throw the second one at you. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll be back. But that, that goes hand in hand with the whole, like, you walking up to people. Mm-hmm. If you walk up, they'll just be like, okay, what's happening? They'll match your energy. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, if you go in all aggressive, you're running in, they're like, oh shit, they, they start panicking, they put the guard up, and they start like throwing shots at you. If you're just like, okay, I'm going to walk up to this side, and let's see what happens. And then they start throwing stuff at you, you can match their energy, or like even even like just go to town on them, you know? just It's more about like, I, I'm a big fan of like, doing things that are fun you know i'm not a bit like i love winning but i like having fun even more so if you walk up to people and they're like who the hell is this guy and then they start swinging and then we're all swinging that's a good time for me Mm -hmm. it's it's a fun time uh i really like that tactic and i have used it a couple times um since watching you do it at uh green harbor opener or something like that yes yeah yeah, no, just walk up like. Eh. Yeah, Zach was like, listing and Balder was listing like seven enchantments on his body, and you just walk up. Pop, pop. And you just yeah. start fighting like there was no one community getting hit. All right, like, yeah, that's it. It was it was entertaining because the the reactions were like, oh, we got to watch Dante, uh, and then Balder was getting like four or five people waiting for him to stop listing his enchantments before they decide what to do. And you're already running on the other side trying to get things done because you don't have enchantments to list. And it's like, yeah, ah, yeah. This, is ve- this is a very interesting dichotomy going on right here. I, I learned that uh, doing the whole warrior with no armor. Mm-hmm. And like I this this whole journey to, and I'm going to like, you know, blow a little bit of smoke up my own butt. Uh, <laughs> doing the whole Paragon warrior like path was interesting because I started with no armor. I started like basically coming over from Belgarth. So it was just like, okay, you can fight and you could probably be a warrior. Yeah, you need armor, but you know, if you go the other route that other bell bell fighters go is go monk. Mm-hmm. Uh you ignore all the magic, you get to do whatever you want. But I like fighting with a shield. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, I guess warriors can have it. And what what do you mean warriors can get their equipment back after kills? Oh, that that's pretty cool. If I get my shield broken, I can get it back. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, now you got the armor. Now you do this. And it, it it's just so interesting to start from, like, nothing and see the things that work. Mm-hmm. And, like, learning the fundamentals help your strategies and your tactics in the long run. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. And it's also, like... Uh, I think Vitalin said that in the comments a little bit ago or a while ago that uh, if you're just steamrolling the other team, start playing like classes that you don't know anything about. That yeah. helps a lot too. Hey. You know, you, you learn what works against those classes, and that helps you build upon your your main class, I guess. Mm-hmm. If you if you're not familiar with a class, play it, learn it. And then you'll learn mm-hmm. what it does well, what it doesn't do well. And then you're you're just increasing your knowledge. Like if you're bad at monk for some reason, find out where it fits. Why why is your tactic not working? What what's going on with it? And it's it's a lot of trial and error, but it is it is a super useful thing. I am also a big advocate of like if you're trying to go for Paragon and you're kind of stuck, start over at level one. 
mm-hmm. figure out where everything goes, figure out why why you're given these things and where they fit, how to utilize them, um, and how to be effective when you have less than other players. And you will be a lot better by the end of that journey because, holy crap, when you figure out, you're like, oh, shove can be as good as uh, counterspell or suppression or sometimes like a stun because they don't know what to do. That's awesome. It's the first level spell. It's definitely a sports thing. Uh, Like growing up watching like uh, NBA basketball, like here and there, uh, like a team like the God. I'm blanking on their name, but they were like super just fundamental basketball. Mm-hmm. And they could just, you know, do great against a team that is just like all the flashy players that do the fancy stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, that like either team can win games. But if you work on the fundamentals, the fundamentals are always going to carry you through mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And I think that's one of the bigger things that like, you know, really uh, beats into you know his squires here that it's like work on the basics the basics are gonna like you know be the foundation on which you build your paragons on you know mm-hmm. it's do uh, your job do your job well everything else will follow yeah exactly it's uh, i know a hockey relation which is like the the detroit red wings in the early 2000s were just unstoppable because they were a bunch of old players that knew how to play the game together and now with exactly. like they weren't individually the players weren't making giant amounts of goals or anything else but they were hard to beat because they knew how to work together and they knew the basics and that was like it was really entertaining to watch a bunch of 40 year olds crush the new team of like 30 year olds that were hot off the presses and they're like we're the best like no you're individually good we are the best together and that that matters so much more than individual flashy skill oh my god growing up like I'm 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 throwing like a, a very weird like analogy here. Uh growing up, you as like a Latino, uh you play you play soccer here and there. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you're young, you can run fast, you can do the tricks and all that stuff. But nothing in life prepares you for the moment when you go against like the old guys who are like way overweight and they play for fun but they know how to play together and they just smoke you because they've played as a team for years and years and years mm-hmm. after work for no reason, you know, like it is just so interesting to watch. And I think it translates into like a lot of aspects of life, like where, you know, you can be like a veteran of something, you know how to play the game and it, it that hard work that you've done over time mm-hmm. helps you stay relevant. I mean, look at our, our, the warlords that are on the, this is their last year. They're retiring after this year. It's a lot of Delos and Harry. Oh, Harry's not retiring quite yet, but Delos, Arthon, they're getting towards the end of their careers and they're still kicking people's butts because they know the basics. They know them so well, they can exploit them against you and they're going to use them. I mean, now they're also do flashy stuff and Arthon decides to freaking do a weird rap shot that goes from his sword side to inside your board side and hit you in the ball it's a very ridiculous thing but they know the basics well enough that they know where your stuff is they know where their stuff is they can get around it it's fantastic aurelius what's your favorite uh general strategy or tactic oh general battle game no specific objective just smash battle Uh, Mm um my i actually like to uh form a cup so i'll thin my line more than the other team does like 
the general layout is going to be you've got your A line, your B line, and your flankers. Mm -hmm. I'll uh, combine the flankers with the A line, and I'll move as much of the B line up to the A line as I possibly can to extend the front. Gotcha. That way you can start wrapping around the enemy team. Oh, so you're doing a horseshoe. Point. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. Either they can bring their A and B line up and extend the line out and hope your fighters are better than theirs. Or they start crumpling in on themselves and start interrupting each other when they back into each other, mm -hmm. which is usually what happens when you do that, as long as you space out your powerful players properly. Uh, you also have to do a lot of what Maxim was talking about earlier, like, you know, assign your players numbers or, you know, at least general feel for who's good, who's not. Mm -hmm. You have to make sure there are a couple of decent players spaced out through the middle of the line. Otherwise, you're just going to get split in two and rolled mm -hmm. up. Yep. But you also have to stack your your 10s and your 12s on both flanks. Mm -hmm. Don't ignore the left flank. Stack a couple of really good people. If you've got some lefties, great. If you don't, well, uh, get some people who can hand match or two swords or a good, mm -hmm. like stack your both ends heavily. That way both ends can push and envelop. Mm -hmm. so that's my favorite. It's it's a it's a strong tactic that, and strategy that's been used for hundreds of years. I mean, that's the... Uh... Now I can't think of battles. <laughs> Um, oh, I know a pop culture one. So it, spoilers for Game of Thrones. Um, there's a battle in it where the the good team gets basically cupped. They get they get their strategy that Aurelius just talked about. That happens to them, except they're back against a wall and they get wrecked. Um, is this but, Battle of the Bastards? I think it is. I think so. Yeah, because it, it's just like the, the teams line up and then and they just crush him against the wall and it's like great cool the, more strategy I love, failed <laughs> like I love that the pile is a pile of dead bodies that's the wall behind them oh that's right it is yeah okay so <laughs> it's it's terrifying but it were it was extremely well planned and well utilized in that in that format um there were some problems with who they had on that field but for the most part that strategy has worked hundreds of times over history it's very easy to implement you just have to make sure your team communicates and is prepared for that um you have to make sure that the folks in the middle know their job is to stay alive not to kill yes uh like apply pressure don't like you know run away but just apply a little bit of pressure mm -hmm. just be there and make sure the enemy team can't get through you mm -hmm. the people on the ends are doing the killing it's um it's boring as hell and it sucks to be in the middle but on the other hand you get the glory of winning kind of fast too, depending how quick your outside guys are. Like if you've got oh, yeah. a good, good setup, it's really hard to deal with that, that strategy without literally backing away from the fight and re resetting yourself. Cause and once stick Peter on the left and Lily on the right, and it's going to go quick. Yeah. That's hard to beat. I mean, once, once the, the horseshoe starts forming, it's really hard to get your team members out of that cup, out of that horseshoe and get them reset. Um, yeah, you have to convince your whole team to back up as a unit. Yeah, it's either that or you have to figure out how to break through, which sometimes that is the best option. Other times it's really hard to pull that off because they've done the, the work and they've put a lot of armor in that horseshoe shape. And as you push, they, they just move back a little bit or they start curling around more. It's it's a, it's a simple tactic. It's a simple strategy and it works. But... Uh, your flankers have to be on point have, to be. Yeah. If your flankers are on point, then the horseshoe just gets back hacked. Mm -hmm. 
But uh, yeah, if, if their flankers aren't on point, or if you've got a couple of guys, like honestly, if I was doing this strategy, I would not put Peter on the line. I'd put him countering the flankers. Mm-hmm. You've got to know. That's where he excels. Like yeah. you, you throw him at that. Throw honestly Lily at that as well. Mm-hmm. People but, that are like mobile. those two guys can probably hold off ten to twenty flankers. Oh yeah, easy. Well, they both know individual fight. For, they know one versus many, which yes. is a, a big factor of those flanking flanking sides. They're also both extremely well known and feared. Yes, people do not want to fight them, even if it's a like ten to one. People are still going to be reluctant to go after Peter. They shouldn't be, but they should just fight him together, and that doesn't happen because oh, yeah. he moves. Like two decent fighters can wreck Peter mm-hmm. if, if, if they know how to work together. Like yeah. you put me and Omar together, like, nine out of ten times we'll beat him. Right. But that means you guys are working together. You've done that practice. You know how to do it because right. your timing is going to be similar. If one person separates, the whole thing's done because now it's a 1v1. I, yep. Put me and my middle brother together and we'll beat Peter 40 out of 40 times. We we did that one night. He was practicing 1v many and he made the mistake of me and the middle brother are drift compatible. If you've ever seen Pacific Rim. Yep. <laughs> Nerd. Oh. So, yeah, it, it takes more than one warlord to break us. It's. I mean, if you got two fighters that work well together, it's very hard to yep. get them to to. Oh yeah. To take them down. Um, Taking one of Mhog's classes back in the day, I think he he talked about a uh, back in the Iron Mountains. There was a pair of people that would, uh, like, they were fifth and seventh order oh, of the warrior. Neither one oh. of them ever made warlord. Um, and they would smash like Thor and Mhog back in Mhog's prime. I can't remember their names. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Michael's talked about them, and it's. Yep. Uh, they're not great fighters, but together they're unstoppable. They worked together. They were basically impossible to. They they worked as a unit, and if they ever separated, they had a plan on how to get back together. And it was, yep. I mean, I, I believe in some of the two v two tournaments, they were taking out Leaf and Spin, like yes, some of the most legendary fighters we've ever heard of. And these two could take it down. It's it, as soon as you get into team fights, the amount of work before, that, you put that was together, the the legend team. Yeah, like as soon as you put these, as soon as you get in a team, if you can fight as a team better than they can fight individually, you're going to win that fight. Um, which is why I, I'm really pushing for Polaris to get 2v2s and 3v3s back into tournaments because now we have orders of battle. This matters a lot more. It's actually a path. Um, and because of the way orders of the warrior have switched up, it's a lot harder to get pulled up by somebody else. Um and depending how you build the the two v twos and three v threes, it's 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 really kind of doesn't change the stats. It's just an extra thing to practice. Um, One could argue that uh, victories in two v two and three v three tournaments shouldn't even count towards orders of the warrior, and should instead count towards orders of battle. Right. I mean, it it really depends on how whoever's running the tournament wants to clarify it or classify it, because it's it's different. It's not one v one as orders of the warrior have been written. Um, but I know like CK's done two v twos as part of their standard tournaments for a while, and uh, there's some tourney math involved. Like it's not always number one and number two should team up together because if number one is only beating number two in that tournament by like one or two points, it's better for number two to go with number three so that those two together can overcome number one, and then number two or number three can become number one. Change it changes math around a little bit because it it messes with tourney stats essentially, but. It's uh, that's for a different episode that I will talk about probably tomorrow. Um, uh, the tactic. So you guys all kind of hit on my favorite tactic, which is uh, 
I call it my problem solvers. You always create your general strategy. You kind of figure out what the line is. And then you create a team of people that their only job is to solve any problems that arise that could fit, make your strategy fail. And I really enjoy that being on this team and making this team because it's just entertaining. Um, they have to be mobile. They have to have utility and they have to have a little armor, but it's normally like four or five people, normally two or three paragons and some armor, but not your best armor. And if, if you see a flank is failing, you see some casters are causing problems. You see, uh, they've clumped a couple warlords together. You take this team of problem solvers and you put them in front of the problem and they deal with it. And that's, that's my favorite thing. It's hard to build a problem solver team out of randoms, but the more people you know, the more uh, you understand who's on your team and what they're capable of, the better and easier it is to make a problem-solving team to just solve that problem. Because like, if you're fighting and you realize that Delos has switched from his classic right side or his classic left side to the other side, and you weren't prepared for that, problem-solvers go deal with it. Either push him around or get him out of the way. You can do this with basically any problem that you run into. It's It's my safety net. I like it. Um, no, military terms, they're your reserves. Yeah, they're sometimes they are some of my best fighters, but like historically, armies don't normally go army against army. It's like battalion against battalion because why risk your entire army in a fight when you could risk 700 men instead of 7,000? Like some of that comes into it, but it's also uh, not, it's not my best it's not the best of the best all the time. It's normally one or two of the best and then some extras that I know can move and work with people. Um, it's honestly the better a teamwork, the better they are at teamwork, the better they fit in that role. Cause it's, it's easier to to solve problems and fit them into problem into situations without them clashing against whatever the team around them's tactic or strategy is. So, um, I don't think we did. Oh no, I did run one that the um, at this last keep we were uh, defending the castle, and I grabbed myself um, one of the healers, and it was one of the assassins or one of the warriors, and I just brought a bunch of amplifications and restorations and stuff and i made that assassin terrifying because a 50 foot assassinate is stupid <laughs> it is stupid funny to watch them do it it's also great when they can 50 foot coup de gras people because that's mean but it works <laughs> um all right so i think we've gone over everything on our list pretty much we've hit war stories very consistently throughout this entire time because this is a great easy way to tell war stories do we have any other tactics or strategy things we want to talk about before we uh close up and make this uh not a three and a half hour episode oh my god it is <laughs> no it's it we're only at two and a half okay. don't worry uh... <laughs> we're only at two and a half i just know how long some of us can talk i i do have one that uh, i think is interesting and it came from a disadvantageous position where uh, like I said, it was a it was a park day. I don't like to pick the team. I like to work with what I'm given. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up on being the best fighter on my team. And the other team had all the other good fighters in our park, and it was a lot of newbies. And we were just getting slaughtered. And so, like as we're all at the at the pole waiting for a speed counter, 
waiting to get set back in. I was like, okay, listen, we cannot fight this enemy team toe-to-toe. They will kill us every single time. So don't go for kills. What I want you to do is to run in, skirmish with them a little bit, don't get within killing range, and then back out and get their good fighters to chase us and get themselves by themselves and then close in on them as soon as they do that. Mm-hmm. And it worked. We ended up turning that battle game around and winning. And we just had to like pull three or four of their guys out and kill them individually and keep them kind of paralleled. But we ended up like turning that around. And that's just one of my favorite like thinking outside of the box strategies and uh, tactics I've ever used. I mean, it's a that's a, a perfect example of how changing the strategy to counteract what you're against wins you the fight you you realize there was a problem your current strategy wasn't going to work so you changed it and they didn't compensate so they lost awesome fantastic i would have uh i would have loved to see like it's really hard to videotape strategies because you need to videotape like the whole field but that would have been a really fun one to video to like have on camera and watch the switch or the change to see that fight happen that's awesome. It was just kind of cool because, like, the the good fighters on the enemy team are so confident they don't understand when they're like going in too deep, mm-hmm. and then you know before they know it, they have four swords hitting them. And yeah, it was it was just a you know keep As your options hubris. open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the difference between a warlord and a battle knight. Does the battle knight recognizes they can't take on four people, and the warlord may not realize they've been dragged into four people. It's uh, it's an interesting thing because we've made warlords so tournament heavy that they may not need to know battle tactics anymore to win fights. They need to know tournament and like strategies and stuff in tournaments, but they may not need to know how to win a battlefield prowess problem. Uh, I've seen that like uh, going to Missouri DAG events. Like, I'm not I'm not trying to rag on anybody when I say this, but like individual combat skill is not as important in mm-hmm. this region or it wasn't when dag was still a thing around here um like just i would go to events and be able to take down handedly every fighter 90 percent of the fighters on the field mm-hmm. i was just a better fighter in that regard but if i walked up to a shield wall i would die instantly because i would just get stabbed from multiple different directions in every opening i had and it took me a minute to realize like what was going on. It's like, well, I can beat all these people individually. Why am I dying so much? And it's because they understood team tactics mm-hmm. and I was being overconfident. It's a it's a legitimate problem if you're not aware of it. Takeaway is go cross game. Go cross game. Yeah. Learn how to fight as a team because oh, Belgarth, for sure. Belgarth and Dag, it's all about team it's tactics. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, and that's that's what I learned. That's that's where I came from. It lacks some of the depth of Amp Guard because it's all essentially militia rules. Mm-hmm. But they they know team tactics down deep in their bones. Yeah, it's it's a varied. I mean, like I know every once in a while I've heard people rag on like, oh, bell fighting is just line fighting. It's like, yeah, so yes, was most is. historical fighting. Well, I don't know what to tell you. That that's historically what happened. Like you can't complain about what actually worked in combat. It was mostly line fighting or block fighting. What? 
really say that Amgar fighting is line fighting. The lines are just kind of drawn differently, but it's basically the same. You have your front line, your you know your support, uh, your people flanking and stuff like that. That's what Belgarth is. It's just you know everybody's just hitting each other all the time. There's no yelling. They're tighter. Well, I, I yell. There's yelling. Well, there's, yeah. there's other stuff going on in Amgar. There is nothing else going on in Belgarth. Right. Belgarth mm-hmm. is line fighting. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it's it's that that's how line that's how fighting has been done for hundreds of years. It's what most battlefields were built on were lines or square battalions moving around, and that's that's how it was done. And that's kind of because it worked. Like it put the least amount of people at risk. It put uh, movability as an option, and it allowed for strategy and tactics to still evolve as the fight went on. It's it's a historical thing. We we can literally go research fights that happen and watch as they basically did line fighting for days on end. Um, if you are doing, uh, if you are doing cross gaming, Belagarth and, uh, dagger here are going to be probably, I think your best for learning team tactics. Um, Otherwise, if you really want to take the level up, go to Boo Hurt and watch like 4v4 melees, 15v15 melees. Those guys know how to deal with team problems and what a sacrifice is because they're they're like points and bodies are on the line for those kind of fights. Um, And a lot of a lot of tactics in Boo Hurt are like smart trades where, you know, you you pick a particular individual out of the team and you're basically going to take yourself out with them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a lot of their thinking too. I also suggest watching SCA events because mm-hmm. like 5,000 people to a side is like maybe not that many, but like, I mean, it gets huge and yeah. you can I've feel the ground fake when they're fighting. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, something else entirely. Yeah, Penzik was 5,000 people on a side the year I was there and it was a small year. That's so many people and so cool. Um, The year that I did go to Penzik, it it was, oh God, so many people. It's a, it's a different um, game. The tactics I was going to bring up, um, 300, the movie 300. Oh, as a, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, I would not watch the movie to get the tactics because they don't do a great job to explain it. Well, Maybe about 30 book. seconds of it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there are definitely, like, documentaries and papers and books you can read about the 300 tactics and why it worked and what they did. I mean, even leading up to it, like, sinking a bunch of the Persian ships and stuff like that, that mattered and changed things. But researching what the tactics were and why they worked is really cool. Um, yes. Sorry, I'll mute now. No, you're good. The The movie is fantastic. It's a fun movie. It's great. Um, they don't wear nearly enough armor. And uh, they do a lot of leaving the ground. So, eh. yeah, <laughs> you don't necessarily need to jump to stab somebody. Skin is pretty soft compared to steel. Just just saying. Um, Revan in our comments said it's difficult to pick up team tactics since our events consistently separate people that would practice together, particular fighting companies. I agree and want that to change. I think especially because order of battle specifically calls out like working as a team moving team mechanics around move like it calls it out we should be enforcing that 
fighting companies should fight together and we should be letting game designers figure out how to balance those teams um and maybe that's yeah. by making uneven teams you just uh, identified one of the biggest challenges with uh enforcing companies fight together uh Taligor in its infancy was uh very very heavily company based mm -hmm. um and there's a you know child kingdom of the rising winds which is also very heavily company based mm -hmm. and especially in the early years uh mitch feel free to comment here because you were also there the uh battle games were if basically it was uh who showed up with more people was it black heaven or soul invictus yeah and that was what decided kingdom level battle games in the early years so while some of that's going to be important, and I think Polaris should adopt some uh, events that are uh, dedicated towards company competition, mm -hmm. it also breeds a lot of resentment and uh, kills fun for a lot. If you're not Soul Invictus, you're not going to have a good day. So uh, I want to I want to clarify a little bit because I think there's ways to make this work. I think we should let fighting companies fight together, but not, uh, or or make sure that we're not separating fighting companies completely so like if there is a larger fighting company like the north star and they want to fight together we have to figure out how to balance against that or we ask them to separate into two teams and then we split from that so we're still letting fighting companies fight together just not necessarily to the point that it breaks a game or breaks things um i understand the resentment thing there's a lot of stories in the tigers about like well we were never allowed to fight together after this event because we ruined people's fun and it was like that's a game designer's problem that shouldn't be ours it should I be think, a thing. I think we did that in Soul Invictus where um, the way to fix that is to have uh, rules or a format like Bridge Wars where you can only have a certain amount of people in a team mm -hmm. to sort of balance things out. So then you have fighting companies trying to figure out, okay, who do we want in our, you know, VIP team? And then, you know, when we were in Soul Invictus, we would end up, like, split up all the time. So then we'd have a Soul Invictus team. And then if, like, Aurelius and I ended up in a different Soul Invictus team, we'd just call ourselves good Soul Invictus team, you know? <laughs> just mess with those guys. So then, yeah, it turned into, like, this competition where you're fighting against your company mates. But at the same time, that's kind of how you make each other better. Yeah. You know, like, uh, that's kind of how we train you know we we fight each other and and do that and then you have like i don't know two or three company based uh teams but that means everybody has a shot you know yep. it's not just like you know only your good people and everybody else gets to watch from the sideline mm -hmm. i think that's absolutely a good model for uh you know, having a couple events a year, but it does get kind of old if you're not on, in a company and that's every mm -hmm. single event. Yeah. So we and that's how Taligor was back in the day. Yeah. We have to break it up a couple of times and let the thing happen. But I think we do, especially because order of the battle is a thing now. It's it's part of our rules. We've got to accommodate for it and figure out what yeah, to absolutely. do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I do that, which is like, uh, I've gone to a couple of events. I went to, again, Bridge Wars not too long ago. And the team that we had ended up being made up of people in different companies. And I think our team was called like four, uh, 14 Druids in the Trench Coat or something like that. <laughs> and, and it's just like, I've always said, hey, look, I'm, I'm for hire. If you want me on your team and you want me to do the thing, like, let me know. I'll, I'll put it on my schedule. I'll come up. I'll do the thing. Uh, I don't 
specifically have to be in somebody's company to want to fight for them. I just want fights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hire your mercenaries. Become a mercenary. If you want those orders of battle, I guess, make yourself available. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are specific companies that are for hire, like the Dog Soldiers of Cthulhu, whatever. Dog Soldiers are a mercenary team. Specifically, if you want them on your team, you just give them, I think it's like a case of beer per five people or something like that. It, they've got oh. a ratio, whatever. It's not oh, expensive. I'm a, little, <laughs> I'm a little more expensive. I, I cost a 30 pack of bush light and oh that's it for the whole that's event, just for though. one day for the whole event oh. no i'll bring yeah. i'll bring my own don't worry i bring my own but you gotta pay the fee you know it's not I, a bad pers- fee personally i'd rather give you a bottle of alcohol good bottle I, of alcohol i don't drink i don't drink liquor yeah. i drink okay, beer yeah. and that's it <laughs> i was very uh, cheap i was there when onwar made that decision yes <laughs> I, that was no, not a good day all yeah. right um, do we have any uh, other war stories or strategies we want to talk about before we open it up just for general questions and comments I like I told most of my good ones that I can still tell I can I still think. tell <laughs> alright uh, I'm going to open it up then for our audience to, to ask any questions or uh, comments or anything like that we'll discuss it from what I heard you guys discussed everything um the tac- the tactics that you guys have said have, have been in play in many different companies including mine and stuff like that it, it's just trying to get them to work cohesively that's about teamwork a lot of it yeah get it get it get it to getting to practice it or i mean the the tactic that polaris has used over and over again has been we make the plan three months in advance. We publish the plan two months in advance. And then we make sure everybody on our team knows what's going on. Or we give them like a simple breakdown of what's going on. Because like, oh, it's got to be the last four keeps at least. I think there's been a Facebook page specifically dedicated of how does Polaris win keep? Like it's been along those lines. And it's like 40 to 60 people just like, okay, so this battle game specifically doesn't allow you to teleport with the barrier with the uh the um uh, object yeah the object the battering ram but the other game does so let's do that and then do that like if you can get on some of those pages and look at those strategies they're just us breaking down and nitpicking everything and then there's one designated person normally to go ask questions so we don't bombard the game writers with like hey we have questions and like 90 people are asking 30 questions part of that too i think is being kind of a jerk about it Mm -hmm. and just being loud and frenetic when you communicate it so people don't have time to doubt you or or double you like Mm-hmm. second guess you you just like hey you over there now go and uh that that can be real hard to do i've been in situations where like i tell my team what to do and they just kind of look at me slack jawed and then go do whatever they wanted and mm-hmm. we lose because of it and and i'm not always right i make bad calls um but but that is a big part of it is a team that's doing the wrong thing together is still more effective than a team that's doing the right thing apart Mm-hmm. yes agreed yeah uh, one thing we did at, uh that. this last keep that uh noah cuball and i sort of star chambered as we all knew the plans polaris had built the plans and whoever 
like whoever built the plane uh, in the the Polaris Winds Keep group got you know credit and got all the recommendations and whatnot. But uh, what we did the day of was we picked one of the three of us to enforce that plan because all three of us have that fancy uh, wardrobe of a white belt mm-hmm. and people automatically listen to us. Whereas they Mitch has a harder time getting people listening to him unless he's like hollering. Mm-hmm. Hey. So we just all right. like, like, okay, we all three understand the plans. Who's, who's team captain this time or mm-hmm. the, you know, de facto and team captain. Who's in, who's the enforcer. Yes. Some, sometimes Not you have to use the, enforcer. the, uh, drill sergeant or stepdad approach. Yeah. You, Harsh words can get people's <laughs> attentions. <laughs> uh, we uh, had to do that a lot less because of our, uh, you know, status symbol. Yeah, yeah. If the other part of that is if I, I that question has been asked to me a lot, especially since starting this podcast, people are like, how do I get people to listen to my strategies and tactics? And I'm like, the answer is be loud and be confident and. Uh, sometimes it's also convincing those influential players beforehand. Like, if you know Raven's going to be at a battle game, go run your tactics by Raven. Because Raven loves that stuff. Hundred Raven the Swift. Uh, there's a bunch of Ravens in this game, but when I talk about Raven, I mean Raven the Swift. Go talk to Sir Raven. He knows strategy. He knows tactics. He's very good at it. He'll tell you if it's bullshit or not. And then he'll be... I mean, if he doesn't have a strategy or tactic that he thinks is going to beat it, he might vouch for your strategy or even like spout your strategy be like yo he's got a plan we're doing this plan let's go because raven will get that kind of do that with anybody that's influential in your your kingdom whoever's the big the big honcho if you can get them on on your team that's fantastic that's going to bring weight to your plan it's going to bring weight to your strategies it also means you have an ace in the hole immediately right off the bat you don't have to worry about, oh, am I going to get that warlord to pay attention to this plan? They're there already. They're ready to go. That battle master wants your strategy to work. They'll do it. So talk with people beforehand um, if you can. If you can't, the confidence helps. Um, so does name recognition. If you can get your name out there more, it helps as well. The first time that I fought Al, oh my god. Oh. This might be one of those stories that uh, can't be told anymore. <laughs> oh, this one can. This one can. Um, if it's the one it, I'm thinking of, it might get me uh, in a little bit of trouble. No, no, this is the one of them that, uh, yeah, you skewered me, but it's not the point. <laughs> but it's, I launched an arrow with zing by you. I was aiming at the person behind you. And you saw and went, wait a minute, no, 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 no. <laughs> it just you drilled me and don't don't get me wrong i i went down but still it it was great i loved it <laughs> i saw it coming and i couldn't say dead quick enough and i was like nope <laughs> well sorry great. man oh no you, <laughs> no apologizing because i had a blast it was oh. it was the only game that I, I was out on the field because of my mobility issues, but I have a blast when I can fight people like you and the other people that are in the room here in here. Mm-hmm. I love fighting them, but I'm old school. I I like using my bow and, and stuff like that. It's I'm old school. Unfortunately, I'm I'm down to using my bow versus actually fighting because I don't have the mobility anymore. And that happens, uh, but you can still be effective on the field, and that's the 
the transitioning how you can be effective on the field is going to be the trick. Um, cause I know you still want your, uh, Paragon Archer mm-hmm. and you're, you're a fantastic shot, but your mobility problem is missing out on the running gun feature of Archer, which is becoming more and more the meta. Um, yeah, but finding ways to be strategy strata, like to make strategies around yourself and tactics around your limitations is going to be the way to get pushed up on that ladder. Um, yeah. I know we talked about that in private in the past. Just, yeah, if we you've have. got a limitation, work around the limitation, figure out a way to make your limitations work to your advantage. You're going to have to play some five-dimensional chess to make sure you, since you can't move quick, you have to know where you need to be mm-hmm. several minutes in advance of where you need to be there. Like, look at the field, look who's on it. Like, okay, they're going to clash over here because, you know, that's the low spot and, or this is the hilltop. So let me place myself where I can hit the sides or the sword side of the enemy team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I was trying to do with you, but you moved over and went, oh, shit, I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you can see strategies happening and you can see tactics moving, uh, then you can counteract them. And sometimes they're very easy to counteract. Sometimes they're not as easy to counteract. It depends on what they are. Um, athleticism yeah. is a hard one to beat with uh, if, if you don't also have athleticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you got to be twice as smart if they're twice as fast. I mean, if they're faster than you, you have to be twice as smart as they are fast because then you have to work ahead of their speed. So, yeah, but we talked it, about like the baiting, like making a situation where a team will basically become like if they if your team can turn the enemy even 15, 20 degrees just enough so that their board side or their sword side hips are all towards you. That archery is just a shooting range. And if you're uh, set up in the right spot, take it down. That that is a skill as an archer is timing that and watching your opponent as they mm-hmm. they go like just waiting for that swing and letting go of the arrow at the right time so they die before their sword contacts the your friendly like ah that's satisfying right there. It's good. And I've happens. only done that once. <laughs> I've only done it once, um, and I've told Merrick the story before. Um, we were at a park, a park that I was not known at. And they had two archers. They chose the other archer over me. It's like, okay. And I ran the field. I, it's, I, the shots were on point. Other than that, it's like, it, it takes time to position and and stuff like that like you guys were saying before it takes time mm-hmm. and as a yeah as an archer in this game it's all about uh economy of shots if you if you fire 100 arrows in the game that doesn't matter if none of them landed yeah exactly but so oh. I have a question on a comment that Maxim made earlier um, sure. He's talking about putting people on arrow duty. Um, I, I kind of feel like that's taking these newer people and setting them up to have a not so fun day if they're basically just paying, playing page or someone. It doesn't feel like they're participating. I mean, is there a better way to make use of them? So I agree with you, and I don't like to do it. I, I like to win at the same time. Um, we're, we all do this for fun. So 
I I don't make it a, a hard thing of like the only thing you're gonna do is pick up my arrows and if you don't do it, I'm gonna run you out of here, you know. That's not that's not my approach. Um I will be le- I will kind of say it generally to my whole team, or if I see a newbie standing near an arrow or somebody standing near an arrow, I'll be like, Hey, will you pick that up for me? And a lot of people have a need to make people like them so they will do it uh that's kind of a psychology thing there um no i don't do it to be a jerk um and i i really do try and watch that that's kind of a a delicate thing of you don't want to be a toxic person which it can be easy to do um uh no i don't recommend being a jerk and making all the new people like day one newbies pick up your arrows (laughs) um uh but um like i said it's a good idea to give people jobs i will i will tell a lot of new people like like i said people in the lower power ranges um lower rated numbers uh their job is to watch our back to watch for flankers to watch for greater undead minions mm-hmm. anybody who's going to come behind and try and like do a high risk or uh, yeah high risk high reward maneuver like uh running into the back of our group um, cause that can be invaluable. I mean, you can take that, that low level player and send them into the back of a group. And if they kill three people, that's, that's a incredible return on investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I don't just have them, have them fetch arrows. It's, it, uh, easier jobs. Um, but anybody can do them. And so more cool. so what I'm what I'm trying to teach them there is to keep their head on a swivel too. Mm-hmm. Cause that's a big thing in combat. If you fixate you're much easier to kill. Yes. Uh, battlefield awareness is, I think, a, a skill, a strategy, or not, well, no, it's a it's a skill. It's a skill that not a lot of players early on understand is um, very hard to teach. It's really easy to learn by doing over and over again, but otherwise it's it's just hard to, to do because we don't use battlefield awareness most of the time in our daily lives like unless you're in a really dangerous or like problematic uh not i don't want to say problematic but like a, a factory or something like that that requires you <coughs> to have your head on a swivel and to be aware of things around you it's really hard to like train your brain to pay attention to your peripherals pay attention to that tingling feeling on the back of your neck that people are coming things like that um and then the step beyond that is knowing how to move once you realize that stimulus is there and what to do with it it's there's layers and layers and layers and battlefield uh awareness is it's something i've wanted to try a class to like teach on but i also don't have a good way to be like hey these are some tips it's mostly just like go fight <laughs> like i i have like a near lethal amount of add coursing through my body so it's very easy for me to just be darting my attention from one thing to another but yeah it's hard to learn in real life because like having a job it's good to be able to focus on one or two things at a time Mm -hmm. um not being able to apply focus to anything for a long amount of time is detrimental in a lot of ways uh combat it turns out uh not so much yeah it's a it's a big benefit in combat when (laughs) your head's on a swivel and you're able to like throw a shot and also turn your head to make sure the archer's not getting you yeah yeah (laughs) 
Oh. I hope that answers your question, Bremen, or at least makes me not seem like such a jerk. Yeah, I wasn't going to call you out. I was just looking for no, other, other things I could. No, no. Me. Maxim needs to be stopped right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. To, to have my squires back, uh, one other thing Maxim does in his approach to this is uh, he'll always ask people, like, knowing that they're brand spanking new, like, look, th this is a fairly competitive game that we're about to enter into. Like, a lot of people are watching. Do you want to play around and have fun with it, or do you want to optimize your performance and help the team win? Like, what is what do you want to get out of this? Mm -hmm. If they want to just play around, then okay, by all means, uh, I'll direct you and give you a job that's going to let you play around a little more. Versus if like, okay, I want to win. Okay, pick up arrows. Helping mm -hmm. me kill people is going to do more good than you trying to kill people. And if it's they definitely, accept yeah. that, like, give them the choice, give them agency in it. Mm -hmm. I think it's They're definitely like a teaching thing. It's a, a teaching moment where it's like, uh, if you if you start as like picking up arrows and then you grow into like a different fighter later on in life, you're just like, oh, I'm fighting, I'm fighting. Oh, look, there's a bunch of arrows here. You start thinking about like, oh, armor are I are my archers like stocked up? Do they need these arrows? I just throw them back towards my you know towards my line, and then someone else can pick them up, or my archers can pick them up. Mm -hmm. it, it helps with the line awareness, definitely. And like to agree with what you say earlier, a factory job does add to that because you have to have line awareness. And so like you're working with machinery and stuff and like you have to be aware of the things that are around you that could potentially kill you. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to like be able to turn and like see things before you start moving. And that's one of the bigger things that they try to like, you know, train you on. And I think that does translate very well into like the fighting thing that we do. Mm -hmm. Um, the thing that uh, Jamie and Michael have both reiterated multiple times is when you get a new player, especially one that's like, you're not sure if they're going to come back, but you want them to help them make the winning, like help them make whatever the point of the game is, help them make that goal happen. So if it's run the, the flag from point A to point B or hold the point or kill certain person, if you're a veteran player, help them along that path and let them get that kill or at least help them get that kill or help them run that thing. Um, it makes their day and they will most likely come back in, in all the years. Michael's been teaching how to like get new players to come back. It's make them feel like they were amazing and winners and they'll want that feeling again and they'll, they'll come back for it. And it's awesome when they do. That's a thing I learned as healer. Um, Back in V7, I always played healer like a demonology warlock, and wow, I always had a barbarian standing next to me. Like, you go in there and die, I'll summon your corpse, res you, and you can keep doing it all day long. Well, it kind of went away in V8 now, and so now I'll just take an undead minion and like, hey, you want to die a whole bunch of times and that death not matter and you just get to keep fighting? Mm -hmm. And I'll put an undead minion on them. Which, uh, controversial uh, aside here, Undead Minion is better than Greater Undead Minion. Okay, off my soapbox. No, for new players, um, I 100% agree. For new players, way better. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I will give um, newer players, you know, kids who have just got a lot of energy and they want to run in and do stuff, and it doesn't matter if they're effective at combat. Like, they're just annoying the enemy team and harassing Plan, them. and mm -hmm. Yeah, keeping them off their keeping them flat-footed or off-balance, um, I will give them Undead Minion and be like, okay, here's what happens. You run in, you get hit by anything, you're dead. Come back to me, I'll bring you back to life. And you can just keep doing that forever, buddy. Mm -hmm. Like, that 
that is a good way to encourage people and to have some effective tactics. It's it, undead minion is I think one of the best ways that veteran players can hand uh, new players godlike status or as close to they know what godlike status is because especially as a new player if you're like oh I don't have any abilities I don't know what any of this stuff does great here's a thing that lets you just run around and kill people as much as you want and I they, had a, they feel like it uh, I had fun with it at No World War for the first year there was a one of the Kansas City Dag players who's actually a really good fighter mm -hmm. uh, came out but he was just wearing a white tunic he had two like dag swords and a boonie hat on nobody at that event knew who this guy was but he's a good fighter and i'm like hey man come here and i put an undead minion on him i'm like you just run in if anybody hits you anywhere you're dead come back to me i'll bring you back to life and man i got so many kills out of that guy because he would just like run into the group they would kind of disregard him and then he would smoke two or three people mm -hmm. and like eventually they figured out what was going on but it was just priceless to watch utilizing the players knowing the players around you yep yep so much more advantage all right we got any more comments concerns uh war stories tactics you want us to review strategies you want us to review no i um, i will say uh there are video games too if you like to play those that i think translate well into amp guard tactics overwatch is one of them um all of the characters are really specialized, which is where something that's kind of different with Amp Guard Tactics to Overwatch of like every player who can wield a sword and a shield and a polearm is kind of the same. Mm -hmm. And then the abilities are just flavor on top of that um, additions to their killing power. Whereas in Overwatch, everybody specialized and deals doesn't deal as well in certain situations as others, more so than it would in Amp Guard. But that's a good way to like learn to read situations very quickly and how to respond to them, how to use your abilities, how to understand specializations. Mm -hmm. um, another good game for that, it's kind of dead now, but Planet Side back in the day, um, it's a it's like a battlefield, but on a, like a global level, and you control continents. Mm -hmm. And you have all these different uh, classes that function differently and have different roles in combat. Like snipers can be uh, a good way to stop a vehicle push by the enemy because they can get up and hide near vehicle terminals. And as people are trying to pull vehicles, you're just sniping them as soon as they log into that computer and shooting them down. Or if you're trying to hold a position or take a position back, uh, you do what's called a max crash where everybody pulls these big armored suits and then everybody else pulls healers because the healers can res people, and when you get res a max, they don't get all their health back, but there's still like enough to enough firepower to really level things out. And so playing those games like that um, really helped me understand a lot of unit tactics in AM Guard, mm -hmm. and like understanding application of force and when to like run away from a situation, when to um, fan out. You know, um, I, I would suggest those two at least. I don't know if anybody else has any other suggestions. Uh, wow pvp in the back in the yep. day used to be better for it now it's really just too much of a numbers game mm -hmm. in my opinion but that and diablo used to be really good i mean so if you get diablo 2 uh resurrected it's a little better um because it's still a lot about which class can work together it does it for solo play it doesn't really apply but for multiplayer it works a little better um mm -hmm. uh 
it's still a little wonky because it's a bunch against it's against a bunch of ads a bunch of npc minions that don't like there are individual boss things but a lot of it isn't pvp like our game is um a lot of the top-down tactics games uh so fire emblem games um oh yeah age of empires uh there's a handful of other ones that are similar they work really well for like teaching kind of basic flanks and stuff like that they also work really well for us because we don't have a lot of numbers our games are not relatively large so individual people matter more and instead of something like civ 6 or um or civ whatever it is or uh uh empire or something rome roads to rome or something like that where you're actually utilizing large-scale battalions um those are going to teach you large-scale battles but a lot of those um large fields uh strategies don't work as well in amp guard because we just don't have the numbers to to pull it off yeah um, it's harder to translate but there's a there's a definite amount of strategy video games that are going to make you recognize things in bat in battle better so yeah there are video games that you can practice i like that out of amp guard practice i mean you can't always be on the field you know people gotta sleep sometimes so <laughs> sleep is for the weak no no go to sleep <laughs> don't be psychopathic go to sleep please um anything else got it we covered it all we covered a lot of it we went over a lot today um uh yeah, so I'm going to circle everything back up. Make sure your uh, strategies when you're building them, read all the rules, make the plan simple, uh, allocate your resources correctly, and make sure that the plan is obfuscated a little bit so that your strategy is not easily countered. Um, when you're building your tactics, make sure they fit within your strategy so that they are not counterproductive to whatever needs to happen. Um, practice your strategies and or practice your tactics and try to work with your team the the teamwork is going to be a big a, uh, aspect of it um and then pay attention to what you need on the field where when you're building your tactics and your small teams for tactics um anything anything else to sum up or we got it that pretty well covers it i think yep. sounds about right awesome all right thank you guys for joining me uh virtual Merrick will roll us out and uh, I'll be recording again in about 14 to 12 hours. We'll see. <laughs> Bye. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. Hell yeah. This has been another episode of the Paragon Path. If you liked what you heard or saw, please drop us a like and follow on YouTube or Spotify or Google Music or anywhere else that you can find us. We have a Facebook page on the path that lets you know when we're recording, what you can join into and what to expect next. We record these episodes live every other weekend on the Kingdom of Polaris Discord. Link is in the comments. If you'd like to learn more, please subscribe, comment, or just drop us a line. As always, happy to see you on the field. See you next time.